Welcome to the Unacceptable Podcast. This is Mila and Ken, and we are with a very special guest, Gael. Hi. Uh, how's it going, Gael? <laughs> it's going. Um, you know, isolation is a thing. We've been doing it for a while now, or I have been. Yeah, but, uh... I, I really enjoyed your video where, uh, where yeah. you were uh, crawling to the top of the stairs. Yes, I'm basically just a cave dweller. I'm a D&D yeah. character now. Yeah, I, I I chuckled at the pathogens comment. I like pathogens. Um, There's a lot of like, oh yeah, we'll get to that. There's a lot of like we'll, we'll lingo that's that's there. So we're thinking we'll do a bit of an introduction. So do you want to tell us a bit about tell us and our our audience a bit about yourself? Sure. Um. So I my name is Gael. I am currently 28 as of time of recording. That subject to change, I hear. Uh, I grew up in uh, Lebanon, in the Middle East. I was was raised there for 14 years. Um, that... Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> I, and if you were raised in Lebanon, you also know that there's not a lot of public school options that are great. So most people go to private school. So I went to a private school. It was a Roman Catholic school. So I grew up Roman Catholic. I wouldn't say I was raised Roman Catholic because my parents weren't particularly religious but still i went to you know i took religion class and all that good stuff um and then at 14 um at the start of the lebanon israel war 2006 was um when we fled because this was after the israeli the you know the idf started uh, ground incursion in southern lebanon to fight hezbollah um and the airport was bombed and so and at that point, our Canadian visas, which my parents had applied to years prior, just had been cleared. And the Canadian government had sent, like, chips and stuff to help people get out. Um, so 2006, myself, my family got on a boat. We went to Cyprus. Then we took a plane. We stayed in Cyprus in a school gymnasium, which was converted to basically like a refugee camp. Took a plane um, to Scotland and from there to Vancouver, where I'm currently living. Uh, and I've been living here ever since. I've uh, made new friends, all that kind of stuff. And um, a lot of things have happened in between that time. Uh, so growing up in Lebanon, I didn't really know what um, gay people were, for example. I didn't know that gay people existed. Um, and that was that was weird for me because when I moved here, I learned that they did. And um, one thing that needed to happen, one thing I was exposed to immediately was the Bush era evolution versus creationism debate that was going on the and, and the internet and this kind of rise of the new atheist movement, uh, you know, with people like Hitchens and Harris and Dennett and those guys, Dawkins. And um, being exposed to that really had an impact on me growing as a teenager and eventually culminated in my apostasy and me letting go of my faith and telling my parents I didn't believe in anything and then converting my family into atheism, if you want to call it that way. So now my family mostly is also doesn't believe in anything, if you want to put it that way, I want to characterize atheism that way. But that was just a stepping stone because what it really was was a way for me to come to terms with my sexuality because I had never been attracted to women um, 
and I didn't know why. Like, I literally had no idea. Um, and and when I was exposed to that, you know, evolution creationism debate, I was exposed to evangelical right wing Christianity from the United States, and which you know explained to me very nicely what gay people were, um, <laughs> and how they were condemned to eternal hellfire. So that was nice. Um, but obviously, like that was me letting go of my faith was also a way for me to come to terms with my own sexuality. Uh, and now I am kind of immersed in a queer sex positive community. I'm also a furry. I'm part of that community, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, and uh, yeah, I've come out to my parents multiple times on multiple different fronts. And they're like Middle Eastern parents. You know how it is. Like explaining oh, yeah. to them like, oh, I don't believe in God. And then oh, I might be bisexual. Most people come out to their, most gay people come out as bisexual because they don't, you know, it kind of softens the blow. Yeah, but, it does. You know? It keeps like the options exactly. open, I feel like. So your parents still hold on to like hope. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. I had to, and then later, a couple of years later, I was like, okay, actually I'm gay. And also I'm a furry. And there's, there was a lot of things I had to explain to Middle Eastern parents who didn't have a really good foothold on what that meant in this culture in this oh, north yeah. american culture and so i'm half i'm also half armenian i'm part syrian so i have kind of that ethnic background um but i i pass for white which is really nice most people and i don't have an accent anymore so most people here can't tell that i'm an immigrant just by looking at me which is definitely a bonus very yes like i feel that i feel like a lot of lebanese people definitely like can have that like at least conditional whiteness and so like we're very privileged in that respect um so yeah i feel i the, the very thing i find like i couldn't even imagine explaining that to my parents like i how would you how did you sort of explain that or how do you explain it right now um well when i had to first explain it it was 2008 or something which was a very different time than it is right now and furries mm -hmm. back then were viewed very differently than they're viewed right now um but i think today it depends on who i'm talking to right like and i also have to obviously and add a caveat which is that i can't speak on behalf of all furries i don't represent all furries if you ask an indigenous furry woman an indigenous woman who happens to be furry there's a lot of those they're gonna have a different perspective to tell you on what it means for them or to them to be a furry than for me um, but generally speaking, uh, most furries have what's called a fursona, which is a, a an anthropomorphic character that either represents you or your goals, or some people believe it is literally them, like those are the other kin or the Therians who believe that they're actually animals. So there's like there's a, there's a whole spectrum of kind of different beliefs and ideologies that fall under the umbrella of furry and it's really difficult to talk about them all the one thing that's changed significantly since 2008 is that the public perception of furries has shifted from the csi you know these are people who have sex in <laughs> furry costumes and maybe have sex with animals to oh it's just another subculture and you know they're just being themselves and have and this kind of a form of expression whether it's artistic expression or character expression or sexual expression, uh, it's just a community like any other community. So I think that's that's a positive change in that aspect. There's a lot to talk about in there. Yeah, so I feel like I like myself and many other people like we're not really um, exposed to that or like we don't really know even 
um, what it is like my impression of it was exactly like the initial one where it, that you mentioned where it's kind of like a sexual sexual kink rather than like a right like a whole like uh identity so to speak well so i guess what you're saying is like it's kind of an umbrella term it, it like i'll give you an example of the kinds of people who fall under the umbrella of furry they've got people who are bronies who are fans of the television's show my little pony like as as created by lauren faust uh, who's the, who also made like foster's home for imaginary friends and powerpuff girls and other stuff okay uh, but they really like that show and they create characters that are ponies like unique for so their personas are all ponies right and they they are they identify as furry but you know they call are more brony like then there's the other kin which i've talked about briefly the Therians. these are people who believe that they are actually animals that there is you know that they are animals trapped in human bodies and these are these compromise a small portion of furries i've only met a few and i've had one very weird encounter and there's a lot of these guys so these people um you know it's part of their spiritual belief if you want that they're animals and furry is just a way for them to express that and then you have people who are pokemon fans who are who create pokemon characters or like or attracted to pokemon characters in general and draw anthropomorphized incineroars for example you know and so that's that's another group of people. I can get into that <laughs> i didn't know can. that was i didn't know that was I although yeah I never took it that like seriously there was more like guilt and then a joke and then a let's go do something productive. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Um, accurate. Um, sorry, keep going. So you also have king communities. Obviously, you have people who are into fursuits and fursuit sex. That is a thing. It gets underplayed because it's not a good look. Um, obviously, people think that it's a bit too adjacent to bestiality, um, and mostly like. Uh, zoophilia or bestiality is very highly condemned in the furry community but you know there are going to be a small percentage of people who are into that as well and then you have like the pup community which has and had now these days has separated from the furry community they don't want that much to do with it pup is more closely associated with bdsm in terms of their sexual maturity they've we briefly talked about this but you know stuff like the contractual idea of what consent means idea of what boundaries are safe space uh, or not safe space sorry headspace during sex checking in uh kind of there's a sexual maturity to the pup community and they don't like being associated with the furry community because of a different ideological rift so this is now a community so i'm not sure if anyone's read um, david foster wallace's consider the lobster but the first mm -hmm. story in that collection of essays is big red sun which is his account of going to the adult film awards, which is kind of like mm. a like Academy Awards for pornography. And yeah. his, the, his account is really good. I highly recommend people read it. I think it's the ultimate dissertation on fandom because I think every community and every fandom exhibits traits that are identical to what Wallace describes in that essay. And I think the furry community is the same. I think the gay community is the same. The gamer community is the same. Every community ex exhibits these kind of traits on a micro level of macroscopic society that so there's the ideological rifts there's these you know different sub communities that pop up and come in there's even alt-right furries and i'm not sure if you heard about this story but milo no. milo yiannopoulos made a fursona and tried to and tried to crash a furry convention and then he like, got I, unironically uh yeah i mean well it's milo right so nothing he does is 
unironic. He's trying to get attention, obviously. And he got banned mm-hmm. from the convention, and he kind of made a stink about it. But there are furries who are, like, alt-right, who wear, like, Nazi armbands and fursuits. And get, so, like, there's a lot going on. So it's very difficult to just narrow it down, condense it into just one identity. There's too many different conflicting ideologies. And the whole point about fursuit sex, like, being a bad look versus you know, pup, the pup community splitting off because of their kink orientation. Like, the reason that happens, there's a rift there, is because a lot of furries want furry to become more mainstream. As conventions get bigger and attract, like, 20,000 people, for example, in some cases, well, now you have hotels, now you have restaurants, now you have people looking to cash in on that. And from a capitalist corporate media um, perspective you need kind of a certain image. It has to be kind of family-friendly. You can't just have people walking around in diapers in a convention, you know, which does ha- which has happened in the past and gotten conventions banned. And oh, gotten- my God. I'm not even kidding. Did you, did you enjoy the Internet Historian videos about... What, did they do one on for, a furcon? I don't think I've seen it, but I like oh. Internet Historian, so I'll definitely check it out. Um, but, yeah, so... And the other side of that wants to keep furry a counterculture movement. And they've mm-hmm. seen how punk as a movement was co-opted by capitalist forces to turn it into kind of record labels and stuff just became a mainstream thing when it began as a counterculture movement. And so you have all these people who believe in furry being weird and furry being, you know, something like like a medium for sexual deviancy and sexual expression, uh, a a hub for queer people and vulnerable communities. And they want to keep it that way. They They don't want it to get assimilated and desaturated through the filter of, you know, corporate family branding. And so that's the current ideological rift that's going on within the fandom. And there's a lot more. Like, this is just the kind of me doing a very quick rundown of what it's like to be part of this community. And hopefully I'm just trying to give the impression that it is a very complicated and intricate community with a lot of different ideological goals in mind, a lot of different expressions and types of people and it's it's not easy to just condense it into just a one definition. Interesting. So it it almost sounds similar or like the trajectory almost sounds kind of similar to like pride in the sense that yeah. like it started off as this like counter sort of resistance movement and now you see these like corporate co-optations and then there's like respectability kind of queers and then yeah. there's also like you know people who are against all respectability politics and stuff like that i haven't seen a lot of like furry involvement in politics is it like would you consider it like a political identity in the same way that like being gay or bisexual would be or is it like more of like a preference that's not necessarily political so there's a lot of queer people in the furry community. There's actually a lot of overlap. Like 75% of furries that were pulled are are not heterosexual. Okay. So they're yeah. either bisexual or queer, asexual, pansexual, gay. And because of that, most furries are also, like 90% of them are like white, are white, male. Um, but obviously you have kind of more different types of representation going on there. But it also means that most of them are socially progressive. And so you have a lot of like Bernie stands and, you know, democratic socialists and left wing people in general in the furry community. 
that so and i think there is because of that overlap because they're so close to the queer community and they saw what happened to the queer community there's there is a bit of resistance to making it into a mainstream political movement they you know there is some something to be said about keeping it you know a counterculture not safe for work type thing but i wouldn't say that furry itself is a political ideology i would more characterize it as a form of expression mm-hmm. so it's kind of like artistic in a sense i think there's a lot of that mm-hmm. yeah i think there's a lot of artistic impression that is tied to furry in general and what relationship would it have to something like bdsm or kink um unfortunately i, I would say that um the furry community isn't i use the term sexually mature i don't know if there's a better term for it i'm not a sociologist um but um bdsm and king communities uh, while there they are also like furry tend to be sex positive spaces where people aren't judged as harshly for being deviants in the way that i think that's the biggest similarity is that both of these communities house more or less people who can be considered as atypical or sexual deviants, non-conventional sexual interests. But I think that's where the similarities end. I think the BDSM and like the pup community and uh, those types of sex communities tend to be a lot more sophisticated in their approach to things like consent uh, and things like headspace. And I think the furry community tends to be a little bit more immature when it comes to that. There's a lot of young people who don't understand those types of boundaries. And I think the reason for that is also because furry is also a form of escapism. So you have a lot of people who are into role-playing and RP, you know, which is, you know, what we call it, where people trying to just be their characters. But I, but I think there's, you know, good movement there. People are, are growing up. There's a lot of queer influence coming from these more sex positive communities, which is educating, uh, you know, people at large, what it means, you know, what consent actually means, um, especially in the context of conventions where you have people, you know, dancing in fursuits and people kind of like touching them, you know, there's, there's a lot of conversations that are now had over these things, which are not, are considered to some extent, well, it depends, problematic depends on where you are. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a great answer. No, oh, yeah. Pup? Sorry. Oh, sorry. What is pup? Oh, the pup community is. Um, I guess I didn't I d- describe it or. Oh. So I'm I'm not a pup, so I don't really I can't really speak again on behalf of this community. But it is a kind of a separate community. Maybe you can call it a sub community, but it really they like to be thought of as a separate community of people who engage in what is known as pup play, and so they wear rubber masks that are thick that are kind of dogs and they have these uh dog you know these kind of they have these handlers or masters if you will if you're familiar with bdsm you're familiar with the you know the master's you know servant dynamic which is a power dynamic that's deliberately set up contractually where you know these people enter into these consensual relationships where there's a, an uneven power dynamic and there's something similar happening with happening with pup except it happens in the context of dog play so you know a pup pretends to be a dog and you know in some instances they would you know even eat out of a dog bowl and you know they have their handlers or their masters who put them on a collar and a leash and take them on walks if you've ever been to a pride parade you may have seen uh these people they're normally wearing pup hoods they're called or they they look like um not rubber i don't know what the material is it's escaping at the moment but they kind of look like rubber masks that are shaped like dog faces um and you generally have 
you know, callers and people who walk them. Again, I'm not part of the pop community, so I, I can't, I really, I'm not in a good position to explain it at depth. Um, but yeah. you could, I could get, I, I have a lot of friends who are into it who could explain it a lot better. But they're generally thought of as a separate community who, yeah, do their own thing. Okay. Yeah, and that's a lot more than I know. I like, yeah. I mean, I in like living in Montreal for a while, I I felt like I've definitely frequented a lot of circles that were like very queer and very um, like queer, poly, etc., trans. But I never came across any furries at all, and I honestly I don't see it online as much either so how did you um find this community and how did you kind of like realize that like that kind of described your identity that's a really good question um and that's also a really difficult question for me to answer because i can only answer it obviously from my perspective mm -hmm. and i don't know what was going through my brain when this happened uh, i can only speculate in hindsight like maybe like here's an example of me trying to speculate, but I, I don't think it's that far from the truth, which is maybe because I never like knew what gay people were uh, by until the time I was like 15, which sexually for a human being is quite a few years after you start developing, you know, uh, sexual tendencies. And mm -hmm. I didn't have a direction to aim those tendencies at. Like I didn't have I couldn't aim it at women because I wasn't attracted to women. And I wouldn't aim it at men because I was a repressed gay and I didn't want to aim it at human men because it looked like I was going to go to hell or whatever. And so I think subconsciously, I just started aiming it at cartoons. <laughs> um, so, you know, like a good example would be like Disney's Robin Hood, like the Fox character from Disney's Robin Hood is an anthropomorphic character. A better analogy today would be like Zootopia. If you like Nick Wilde is the modern day Robin Hood is kind of joked. As Robin Hood was kind of like a very big, big one for people. But for me, I also had other weird ones like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like, I don't know. There was stuff that I was attracted to that I didn't know why. And I didn't even understand it as sexual attraction at the time. I didn't understand that that's what that was. And eventually, you know, being a teenager on the internet, looking up pictures of stuff, um, I found, I stumbled upon pictures of like cartoon characters being depicted in sexual contexts. I don't know, like Robin Hood or whatever. Um, and it did something for me sexually. And I was like, holy shit, that's weird. And I, I like it. Um, and I just kept seeking it out and I sought it out and I found this entire community behind it of people who seemed to be kind of in the same position as me. Um, and I think, I feel like it, it felt like cheating in a sense, like Robin Hood isn't a dude, right? He's, you know, he's an anthro anthropomorphic dude. He's a dude, you know, but he has a tail and he has cat ears or whatever, you know? It's that's kind of the cheat, I think, with anthropomorphism, if we're trying to examine it psychologically, is that it doesn't count. Right. Um, so I think that's if I had to really guess and it's really just speculating again, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know what was going through my head, but I stumble upon something that I was able to aim um, my uh, repressed sexuality at. And it now has become part of my identity. And this is actually something I think that's relatable to a lot of people who are in a similar position as me. As so if, if you hadn't repressed your homosexuality, you wouldn't be furry? Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, can't yeah, answer, yeah. I can't. I have no way of answering that question. Um, uh -huh. But maybe I would have had, maybe I would have just been happy to be attracted to human males and would have never, um, you know, aimed my, I don't know, uh, aimed my sexual desires in another direction. 
um, and maybe I would have just like grown up as a gay kid and you know had a boyfriend at fourteen or fifteen and got heartbroken and became cynical and whatever just the typical i don't know i don't know what sorry i'm offending a lot of gay people right now but i don't know what it's like growing up to be a gay teenager who's you know completely happy with their sexuality and who understands who understands the society accepts them i wasn't that teenager i didn't grow up in a society that i felt accepted me for who i was and as a result i didn't accept myself for who i was until i was like 21 right the way after and i didn't have like sex with another person until i was like in my 20s right like mm-hmm. 21 i think ish so it, it it was weird um and i think this just provided a good outlet and the the art and creating a persona like all that stuff just came again as a, as a way of expressing myself as a way of putting a goal in front of me um that i wanted to reach maybe to some extent like having a having having a persona that is more ambitious or more you know oratory or more skill like those are a lot of people do that they create an avatar that is um a goal of what they want to be as opposed to who they currently are and they try to aim to become that person now i should say not everyone does this and i'm i'm trying you shouldn't take what i'm saying and generalize it to all furries but some furries it's literally just they like the art and they just it's kind of like anime they're like anime fans they just like it and they consume the media for other furries it's their entire lifestyle it's everything revolves around it so it's there's a gamut there and you know i guess the only word of caution is don't take everything i say and try to generalize it to all furries because i don't think it'll apply mm-hmm. this made me think of i like i obviously it's not the same thing but you mentioned anime and like i very recently discovered what like anime i mean i knew what it was but i watched right. my first anime i heard like, that you watched death Note. yeah i watched death note it's a yeah. Great anime. yeah and uh i mean I, I recall like your brother telling me to watch it like years ago but i uh, i eventually got to it and uh yeah it was great but yeah so i i kind of learned more about the community and like i know that like there's like a sexual sort of community around anime and, like oh, yeah. and uh and there's, I learned recently about what a waifu. Oh yeah. Oh, a, a, a you've been missing out. Wrote a, a song about it. About and, their waifu. Uh, their waifu's exotic thighs. I love and, it. Uh, and uh, I, I, I thought it was really interesting because, like, I personally just can't relate. Like, I, right. I'm not hating, but I, yeah, I just for me, like, when I feel attraction to someone or something, like, it always has to be a person that, like, I know and like have like gotten to know yeah so for me when yeah so for me when it comes to like just imagery of anyone or anything like even uh if it's like a real person i find it hard and so then when it's like a a cartoon or something or like then i really don't feel it at all um i don't know maybe i'm just like i i joke about this like it's like you know catholic school guilt where like you just feel like you can't get sexually attracted to anything oh that's that's so interesting um because i relate very hard to the idea i I can't so i identify also as being aromantic just to say that uh, like i i do not have conventional romantic desires to be in a relationship with and with most people or with most anyone it doesn't develop naturally for me and so what needs to happen is i need to spend a lot of time with somebody i need to like feel like they're my friend i need to know them very 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 well before I even consider having a relationship with them. 
um, which so I don't understand dating, right? I don't understand just like meeting someone you've never met before and going out and seeing what happens. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, yeah, I've never done that either. Maybe I'm uh, here. <laughs> well, yeah, honestly, I feel the same way as you do. Mate. Are we yeah. all? Are we, are we I, all? I, yeah, I, that was like kind of, kind of like not uncommon. Arrow life. Let's do it. Uh, yeah i i i don't know i don't know if this is yeah is this like a i guess it is like you know with like tinder and stuff yeah that's but i always thing. saw that as like a sexual thing but i think like think like uh, from okay so i'm not straight so i don't know what it's like but my understanding is that people literally just go out with strangers and like go on a date and meet people that way and then yeah, you kind of see I if you get along that. and then you maybe have a consider having a relationship off of that I don't understand that. I know that's. I've done that. It's not an efficient. I don't know. Unless you're like incredibly, <laughs> unless you're incredibly attractive and you're all down to just like fuck right away, which is like, like there's like a twenty percent of the attractive, and then there's like the twenty percent that are willing to do that. It's not an. It's not an effective use of energy. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> no, I feel but that. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I feel like every person I've been with, um, I've had like had to like really get to know them and like you know talk to them and stuff like that um so that's kind of yeah that's kind of like for me what where it's at but yeah maybe i mean i've had i had years where i thought i was like asexual um but then i realized i just wasn't doing the right things (laughs) yeah so to speak um but but yeah, I mean yeah, it's interesting. It's it's really interesting to like come into like, you know, an identity where it's like, it's not really like learned. It's more like oh, okay, this makes sense, but I just haven't had the language to express it. Like that's kind of how I've discovered things. Yeah, um, that's one of the reasons I like the queer community because the queer community is very good at coming up with language that is useful for identifying who you are or you know, what exactly it is, however niche it is. So I know some people think that or view that as a negative thing, that there's, oh, too many words for too many genders or whatever. Like, I know that yeah, that's... Yeah, I've that's been ambivalent about that. It can be both. It can be both. Yeah. I think the criticism would be sometimes it can become a bit of a power game. With people yeah. Redefining things, like, every time they want to for the sake of, like, gaining the term advantage in a conversation, but... That's yeah. yeah, that's what I worry about too. I, I or like I worry about again like strategicness because like or alienation. Um, like there will be like people who are like on board with like queerness or like in like the most like general sense, and then like you'll be like um, introducing new terms all the time, and then people get like frustrated and like alienated. But then that doesn't necessarily mean that like these terms aren't helpful to people who yeah. come up with them. It's like like before you uh before this episode Gail and I were talking about the term toxic masculinity and I was saying like yeah like I kind of, like I agree with a lot of its premises but like I can see how the term is alienating to people or maybe there's just misused and abused maybe there's a better way to like talk about it there are premises in these theories and terms that I um I think are good and important observations but i am always very like concerned about like language and like to qu- 
quote Wittgenstein, the limits of our language, <laughs> limits of our worlds. Um, and I guess like, yeah, so my concern has always been um, not being able to get through to people, not because they're not going to agree, but because the term will turn them off before they can agree, um, because they interpret the term more through their pre-existing assumptions than what the term's trying to like redefine. So I think, for instance, when you talk about toxic masculinity, men assume that you're saying that masculinity is toxic, yeah, and then they sure. feel attacked um, by that. But you were saying that you think it's a good term, and um, yeah, I don't know if you want to expand on that. Yeah, we were talking about these things. I think rape culture is definitely a little bit more out there. It's a very rhetorically hard like phrase, and so it's it's very difficult to actually go i think get through to someone explain to, explain to them what rape culture is if they aren't prepared to charitably sit down with you and interpret everything that you're saying you know for what it is whatever intellectual underpinning you have for it i think toxic masculinity is a useful term because even though it most people don't understand what it is even though it is kind of again like you said m maybe people will interpret it as me saying that masculinity is toxic but it just I, it just points it's just an observation it's just an observation that like there is a certain archetype of masculinity that is being pushed that people are expected to adhere to and that has negative repercussions down the line it has these kind of like ripple effects for society it's a complicated theory um although you know i don't think i think a few google searches could definitely illuminate that for whoever is confused about it um, but I think a good example I was giving also was um, the current COVID crisis. Is interesting. Uh, we we have um, everyone's talking about social distancing. Every government is talking about social distancing. The Canadian government, when it first began talking about this, uh, also started using the word social distancing. But then, after one of the cabinet briefings, the Minister of Health, uh, Patty Haidu, started calling it physical distancing. She even said, you can actually, there's, there's, there's a video of this, of her saying, maybe we should start calling it physical distancing. Like just having this epiphany in the middle of a cabinet press, press briefing where reporters are asking her about it. And then from that meeting forward, everyone just, everyone in the cabinet and everyone in the provincial cabinets, if you listen to like the provincial officers or the federal ministers of health or provincial ministers of health, and even the prime minister, they start calling it physical distancing all of a sudden. They changed the language because physical distancing is more accurate. It is what we, it, it's better than social distancing. It, it has a better connotation. We don't want to be socially distanced from people. We want to be physically distant from them. And so when you take that and you apply it to language, then yes, I think, uh, I can't remember who pointed this out, but yeah, flight attendant didn't stick, or sorry, flight attendant stuck. Flight attendant was a term that stuck from the 90s. That was a gender neutral term for uh, stewardess. But women with a Y didn't, right? A snow person didn't. We still say snowman. Like <laughs> some things stick and some things don't. And language evolves organically that way. And I think that it's a legitimate concern to have that some terms can scare people off. But I also hear those noises coming from people who are trying to legitimize their position um, against certain groups like like TERFs, for example, or trans-exclusionary trans radical feminists, people, people who identify as feminists but don't recognize trans people. They consider the T and LGBT to be a step too far. Now, maybe if we're all progressive, we can agree that, okay, that's you know, that's clearly wrong and that trans people are valid. But then those types of noises and those types of arguments have been uh, leveraged by people who have 
you know, motives to invalidate certain people's existence, whether it's trans people or otherwise. And that's the only reason that even though I think it's a legitimate concern, I don't think we should jump too hard on the bandwagon of like, well, let's just neuter everything and let's just have like neuter all our language and have it be kind of very clean and, you know, accessible to everyone. And because I think language is muddy and it is sticky. It's it's the kind of thing that, you know, it's it's difficult to describe certain things. You need more words. You need more terms for it. It doesn't mean that more genders are coming into existence. It just means that we have different definitions for different places on the gender line where a certain proportion of people fall. And we go, okay, enough people like have this experience that we can actually call it something, right? And yes, we don't expect the world to come on board with it and everyone to start using all those terms, but they're useful terms. And I'm just a little bit scared of people who have you know malicious motives who want right. to use who want to use that argument to try to exclude people who I think are currently struggling with you know rights of their own civil liberties that they they don't currently have. I guess like some of the stuff that's concerned me as well is like when this um, would clash with like other progressive causes, like a lot of older people or people who like don't speak English as a first language might not use like the correct terminology and like um end up they end up like getting piled on for that so like yeah. you know when like most people aren't in yeah. uh the position to um what do you call it like to research the history of yeah. these terms right like most people don't know um the history so they might know the history of like popular slurs mm-hmm. and know to refrain from that but I think of like, you know, I I don't think that I just find that now it creates it also creates an opportunity for like some marginalized groups to be angry at other marginalized groups. Sure. Um, so like one of the ways I also see this pan out is like when we talk about foreign policy. Oh, yes. um, and so like I re- I recall this Twitter fight I had where I got placed on this block list of uh noted homophobes or whatever which is funny to me but basically i was talking about the iraq war and i was saying how like i i don't know i was just doing my usual shtick of how evil the iraq war was which <laughs> i genuinely think it is and um this person jumps in and starts like trying to shame me out of saying that because they're saying well iraq is like iraqis are homophobic and like we need to like bring in like our like liberal values okay. like we need to save queer iraqis right and, and and the, but the thing is is like that's not a fringe view like a lot of yeah, yeah. american liberals feel that way and so what they do is like they'll be like like they'll use the instance like they might use the instance of you know you saying okay well growing up in lebanon i didn't know what a gay person is sure. and be like this is then use end up using like colonial language to be like okay well like <laughs> these savages oh, we, yeah. must, we must educate these savages yeah or like we need to like progressive terminology is now being used as like a sort of front for like civilized yeah. terminology whereas then like people who you know aren't necessarily and that doesn't mean that like there's not progressive people in these societies. It just means that they're not out in the open necessarily. And so a lot of people, like older people, might not know about it. Like my parents don't know a lot of terminology. 
Um, Neither do mine. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, but I feel like then that becomes weaponized as well by like imperialists or or what what have you. And so it's it's I, yeah, like I think what you're saying is correct. Is like it's very sticky. It's like it's very difficult to like kind of moderate where because at the end of the day, everything can be weaponized. Yeah, you know. What I mean? So it's so just then, a tool, right? Yeah, like language is, is a tool and whatever. But then my concern as like a progressive person is being like, what's a way that I can express this to non-progressives in a way that'll get them on board with me, I guess. I think like that's that's a very valid thing that you pointed out. And I obviously I think one of the things that you go without saying is that we should be reasonable in the way that we exercise our, you know, or if you yeah. want to call it judgment on how people are using language, we shouldn't be, you know, moderating language and policing the way that people speak. I know that there is some controversy there, obviously. I think there's people who believe that we should be policing at least some of the way that we speak or that we should be changing the way that some people speak. And there's a whole debate there that, you know, could be had on political correctness. And, you know, it's the apparent tension between political correctness and the need for more nuanced political terminology to identify marginalized people and of course the larger issue of how does that tie into colonialism and you know this colonialist language that we use to justify imperialist adventures into countries where they don't have these types of you know new kind of essentially college level conversations of uh, you know not just called north american college level conversations yeah. of these things and and yeah it's a difficult question and i agree I, I think obviously we shouldn't be applying the standard um to people who aren't there yet but a lot of right. people are there a lot of people are there and are just maliciously choosing to defy it in the name of some sort of free speech and i think a good example that i give for um trans people in general and like a lot of people a lot of people get angry because they have to you know i don't want to your pronouns like i don't want to learn your pronouns i'll say whatever i think you are it's like okay sure you can do that that's fine you have the free speech right to do that no one you're not going to go to jail for doing for doing that right and this is this is a true story i had a friend in high school whose name was noah and he didn't like the name noah i I don't know why maybe it was a little bit too biblical i have no idea he just didn't like the name and so and he decided to change his name to sam and this person isn't a trans person. He's just someone who had a legal name change because he didn't like his previous name. He's like, I don't like the name Noah. I'm going to change my name to Sam. Please call me Sam from now on. I was like, sure. And then everyone who was friends with him, everyone who he liked, all called him Sam. And everyone who he didn't know, any strangers that met him, he would introduce himself as Sam. And people would say like, hi, Sam. Nice to meet you. They wouldn't even consider that this person used to be named Noah. And this isn't an exercise in like free speech where I'd be like, well, fuck you. I knew you as Noah. I'm just going to call you Noah to be a dick. It's like, now you're just being an asshole. If someone, if someone just wants you to, to use a certain term, if you want to be friends with them, then sure, you can choose not to use that term if you want to trigger the libs, if you want to trigger them, if you want to, like, you know, be an asshole. And that's fine. It is completely your constitutional right to be an asshole. Just like, but also re- realize that that's what's happening. It's not like this person's trying to, to police your speech. He's just giving you a preference. He's like, hey, I prefer to be called Sam because that's what I think my name should be or that's what I want my name to be. And then he got his name legally changed to Sam when he was old enough to do it after high school. So that was and that was the end of that. And no one makes that things like that happen every day. I don't see why that's so different from someone going, hey, you know, 
I don't identify as a male anymore. I prefer if you use, or I do identify as a male, but I still want you to use female pronouns against me if you're my friend, if you're someone who likes me, right? And I think yeah. that, you know, it's just, a, it's just polite, I think. I don't think it's, a, and a lot of people are malicious and know these things and just choose not to do it because they think it somehow represents political correctness or policing of their speech. And I think that's hogwash. I think, yeah. I think, I think the way people uh, become made aware of something like pronouns is usually either through a media or someone telling them like a crazy story. Yeah. And, and, and the assumption is that it's, it's a, basically a weapon, which says a lot about that we live in a society. But um, mm-hmm. it, it, it like they assume that there is this suddenly unrealistic standard that they have to live up to. And then they're, they're defensive about that. I think that's just like what my explanation of why people are so resistant to pronouns. Yeah, I think, yeah and, but I think also because it challenges like what you your pre-existing assumptions of how you saw the way that the world is structured. Like you grow up thinking like, OK, like your what's in your pants like determines how you're supposed to be gendered. And so and like people are afraid of change, like people don't like to have their way of life questioned. It's very threatening to a lot of people um and so people are going to try and find ideological justifications for it uh sometimes people will try to front as like a tough guy and be like i'm not doing anything for anyone and that's like a genuine like phase that people have and i think it's 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 true also that you know there's this idea of okay well you're going you're going to be policing me and i don't want to be under your power but then I also think, you know, like even for cisgendered people, like if I was in the workplace um, and I mean, I'm a bad example because I like, I feel like sometimes I feel very masculine and like, I don't care if people would, were to refer to me as he, but let's say I was like a very feminine person and a cisgender woman, which I am. And I was like, I'd be in the workplace and someone just kept calling me a, a man. Like that would be considered workplace harassment, even mm-hmm. though I'm not even trans, right? Like it's just like everybody wants to be gendered in a way that they want to be gendered, whether you're cis or trans. So it's like if you request to be uh, gendered in a certain way and someone does not adhere to it, they are going to be policed in some respect. I wonder how much that is like, like, like if someone calls me a she, like one on one, like five times like i it would have i'd I'd be less inclined to be offended than if they were doing it in front of a group to to disrespect me like i wonder how much there's group status versus genuine need for like gender identity i think well definitely like it is like people don't want to be humiliated so like if their prof decides to like be like a tough guy and be like i'm not gonna like i'm gonna misgender you in front of classmates who know already that your pronouns aren't this yeah. then then it's like a sign of disrespect did you and see so, that um there was one case at my school where like a prof did that um but like he didn't get in trouble because like i think he was just old and like senile like i don't think he was maliciously misgendering yeah. but it was still embarrassing for the person in question i think some people um overthink this and they conceive of the narrative of like sexual or gendered minorities trying to uh police them sorry 
yeah i think i think some people will weaponize it it's inevitable people weaponize a lot of things people weaponize their religion they weaponize um any aspect of their identity they can like something that really annoyed me when i was in catholic school was you know the use of like being offended to try and like exercise their authority over me like that really bothered me you know? everybody like, does I, that yeah everybody does it no matter so, what so should we have but no. but i think I think what's what's wrong is when you attribute that to a particular ideology rather than attributing that to like as a human feature. Mm -hmm. So like people will attribute mm -hmm. this to like transness where it's like, mm -hmm. well, no, because, you know, I I remember I was, you know, in, in school and I wrote this article that criticized Mother Teresa when I was like in grade 12. And <laughs> I... And I mean, Jesus, and, and that was inflammatory. A niche criticism <laughs> of Jesus. He should have took all his power. No, okay, go on. Sorry. No, but but it was very interesting. So I wrote this article criticizing Mother Teresa. I still think my criticisms are correct, by the way, but that's yep. not the point. Um, I and and there was a way in which professor or teachers were outraged at me, and I don't know like at the time i assumed their outrage was not genuine and that's what upset me like i thought that they were weaponizing the like sacredness of mother Teresa in order to like exercise discipline against me oh and can i, can I give another thing so they, yeah. they think you're challenging their collective yeah they think you're attacking a load-bearing fiction and and they think that you should know better and they think it's you're valuing yourself more than the the collective sorry keep going and then, right. and then they're like, so who is this like fucking yeah. this bitch? Yeah. yeah. No, so but but what my point being is that like, you know, one of the teachers that got mad at me, like I still talk to him occasionally and like um I see the way now that he expresses himself and I realized that like he wasn't getting mad at me to exercise power over me. He just it just provoked an emotional reaction in him and he had to say something about it. And I think like similarly, like there are always going to be people that weaponize um, like social, new social norms, old social norms, um, sensitive topics in order to try and exercise power over people. I mean, the government does it all the time when you see people burning flags or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, or like, if you say, I don't respect the troops, like you're going to get a ton of shit. <laughs> the um, troops are all right. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but if I were, if I were to just like, you know, say, fuck the troops, I would probably get in a lot more like shit in the U.S. than if I had misgendered someone. The sort of and that has annoyed me. Like the outrage industry about the troops, for instance, it's like yeah. this kind of reverence that's expected of them. But I think at the same time, yeah, you know, there are some people who are like actual family members of troops, and they might actually feel emotionally upset about that. Yeah. Um, whether I think that's valid is irrelevant, but I I think that it's just you know that's. People will always use ideology for some end. You can't escape ideology, as my boy Zizek said. And so, um, and so I think that it's just, yeah, it's just inevitable. And so I think right now what you're seeing is people are trying to make this a feature of like the trans community. And they're trying to be like, they're like authoritarians. I think uh, Peterson compared them to Mao, which was really funny. Yeah, he uses, he uses terms like, Oh, that neo feminist neo Marxist cultural yeah. feminist neo Marxist, which which by the way is a meaningless term. Like, yeah, yeah, it doesn't it's mean anything. Meaningless. Um, but but, but yeah, in the, in the sense that it literally has no definition. In the sense that there is no that that there's no definition for that term. That's not a. 
That's not a I real think, Turk. I think Zizek has like tried to articulate this to him that like postmodernism and Marxism are like at odds with each other. Rather he doesn't than, understand like... that. He doesn't understand post. Okay, I'm not going to get into it. Sorry, you just yeah, we won't me. get into Jordan that, Pearson doesn't understand postmodernism. Um, he doesn't understand a lot of things, but I mean, he he didn't stay in his lane. That's the issue with Pearson. Yeah. Is he he didn't stay in his lane. Um, which I mean, I think a lot, again, I think a lot of like male academic or just academics in general, you know, like they, uh, feel like their status as an academic entitles them to comment on matters that they're not even specialists in. Yeah. But we're um, doing a podcast. I mean, we're kind of doing a lot of our favorite people do the same thing all the time, just with things that we yeah, like. Yeah. But I think the yeah, difference but is. But they don't wield their titles to do it. Like he would, he would be like as a professor, as a psychologist, like whatever. Like, I think that's kind of. I think it's more just because people were listening. I've I think there's also the difference, an important difference is that, um, especially this happens more at science conferences, but even in podcasts, in the casual podcasts like these, I was just talking about the pup community and the furry community, both of which are either communities I'm in or I'm adjacent to. And I was couching every phrase with, I don't represent all furries. There's someone who knows better than me about this. I'm not an authority on this. This doesn't represent most people. Um, and I think that if you're an academic speaking on a subject that you're not qualified to, every single sentence you say should be couched in those qualifiers. Yeah, absolutely. Be, and I saying, try to do that, too. You know. I try to, like, couch things in these qualifiers because it's like, look, like my degrees are in political science and philosophy. Like, that's where I'm at. I'm not going to go speak about psychology. Yeah. And you when, can you you can speak about psychology, but and, you know you can say also I'm not a psychologist, right? Yeah. But but here's my opinion, and then people can consume that and go like, okay, I know what your opinion is. You know, I will do my own research. I know that you're not a psychologist, so they understand that you're not qualified to talk about it. But most people who listen to Jordan Peterson go, oh, he's a professor. He probably knows what he's talking about. I have friends who are really into Jordan Peterson, who who don't who don't know anything about postmodernism, who don't know anything about you know, Marxist theory, who assume that everything he says is correct because he's an authority figure who presents himself as an authority figure on the subject without qualifying what he is and isn't, what isn't, isn't just his opinion as a, like, which is just as valid as my opinion as someone who is, has not a professor of Marxism. Like, I have an equal opinion on Marxism and postmodernism as Jordan Peterson has. The difference is I'm not using an authority title to claim that people should, you know, Listen to yeah, me in any way other than being a casual nobody just talking my head off about something I'm not qualified to. Yeah, it's it's a lack of epistemic humility, as I like to say. Totally. Like, it's just being like, and, and I think, again, like, I'm not attributing this just to his ideology. I think a lot of people lack epistemic humility, and I would criticize them for that, too. Um and sim but similarly what he does and his his lack of epistemic humility is then he tries to attribute uh on unsavory features of humans <laughs> into like an ideology yes which is like no we're all susceptible to doing this and we've all done it in some respect like we've all when we get mad like i've been in in community circles where like people have tried to be like oh well you're just mad at me because i'm this and whatever and it's like it's a sometimes people might genuinely believe that and sometimes people might be using it to gain leverage you don't know um and i think you know depending on circumstance you can choose whether to interpret them charitably or not but mm -hmm. it's it's going to differ based on you know um what you're doing and where you are and so these people try to come up with these grand universal theories of like 
oh, like, you know, feminists are like this, Marxists are like this, like trans people are like this. And it's like, yeah. it's all more complicated than that. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when you're an academic, especially like, especially because when you're an academic, you're doing something so nar narrow. Like if I were to talk about what I did for my master's thesis, it was very narrow. Like your specialty is so narrow that you can't, like you should know if you have went through the academic system not to make these grand assumptions about what everyone and everything is like. What grand assumptions has Jordan Peterson made? I can't even remember. I feel like we're talking very vaguely now. I think he's made grand assumptions about like transgender people for one, about Marxists, about feminists. What Not just mean? assumptions. He's made okay, so he's made he's made the claim that the postmodern thinkers like Foucault and Derrida were secretly Marxists. Which yeah. is which is historically incorrect. Just, just literally, it's not an opinion. That's just not yeah, a thing. Yeah, Foucault is like praising like, Milton Friedman and yeah, shit. Yeah, these people weren't Mark, and he's trying to draw a line straight through the postmodern thinkers into like contemporary feminist, what he calls identity politics, and say that this problem of identity politics, which is a problem of freedom of expression and political correctness, is directly tied to this cynical postmodern, you know, deconstructionist theory that was propagated by Derrida and Foucault. And, and he's doing this, by the way, as a way to justify his own ideological, uh, you know, beliefs of whether it is a return to modernism or whether it is faith as a way to heal yourself or whether it is, you know, cleaning up your room or holding your head up straight when you walk, you know, that 12 rules for, rules for right life shit that he wrote about. Or in his previous mm -hmm. book, Maps of Meaning, where he propagated this insane you know, again, mo very modernist theory of, oh, the, the male represents order and the female represents chaos and the female is the dragon. And this is how you navigate, you know, the world through these assumptions. So he's made these unbelievably um, yeah. absolutist uh, claims, yeah, it's the absolute which are either which are either yeah. which are either historically incorrect or or just philosophically don't stand on any sort of real ground and he's using postmodernism and marxism which are very broad terms for things that fall under like huge umbrellas like there's so many disciplines within these as a general just uh you know a cudgel just to to smack things that he doesn't like and that's just very completely sloppy. intellectually irresponsible i was also annoyed because one of his things railing against Marxism is he goes, well, it's responsible for all these deaths. And then he ascribes, or then he, he's a strong proponent of Christianity. Well, how many deaths is Christianity responsible? Yeah, Can I say good. one more thing about yeah. what I think he was getting at with his whole postmodern thing? Uh, I think what he would, would, would you say that postmodernism is like, how is that, how is that um, related to some sort of like purely subjective relativism? Like, I think what he was getting at is that some people that he called maybe sloppily postmodern uh, Marxist feminists or whatever were saying that identity has absolutely no basis in any objective reality and that there's only language games to gain power. I think he was getting at something like that. I think that's a hasty generalization of what It's something that when, like, when, I, when I heard that, I was like, that's so true. And I still kind of, and I don't, it's not, it's not, again, it's not like we were saying, it's not only with this group but there's a lot of broad claims being made about how identity is purely subjective and any any sort of claim enforcing any sort of underlying reality to identity is 
but I don't think that's what postmodernism is quite like I'm not I'm not a big fan of postmodernism but but it's kind of more that it's against like teleology and grand narratives so it's against yeah. like grand narratives of history so that includes Marxism because Marxism is a is like tells a story of like historical uh Maybe he was using the term wrong and I'm using it even more wrong, but I think there's something underneath what he's saying that, that, that has some, some, some value. Um, let me try, because I think this relates something Mila was saying earlier. Um, so, sure, I, I can agree with the idea that um, identity being kind of a subjective thing is a bit of a, kind of a, a philosophical line that's been picked up by people maybe recently for political gain. Um, I think that that isn't necessarily untrue, but I think he's trying a little too hard to ascribe this essentially weaponized version of just an analysis system that was brought forth by these postmodern thinkers and essentially imbue them with these ideological motives that they never had to begin with. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Like these people, again, yeah. just like the other thing we were talking about, it's they were just talking, identifying a tool. They were, they were identifying a tool that was later, you can say, if you want to, you can claim that it was weaponized later to destroy this concept of identity and modern identity politics and how it's all subjective. And there's a whole can of worms there we, that we can open. And to some extent, that's what Jordan Peterson is really criticizing. I just think he has a responsibility not to tie it in with what with the analysis systems and the tools themselves which they're just tools he should be attacking the people who are using them but he's kind of saying that the people who created the tools are the people who are using them he's saying that these uh -huh. postmodernists yeah, yeah. were feminist cultural marxists you know he's saying that they did have these ideological motives to tear down you know individualism and and i think that's just you know incorrect and irresponsible what yeah. term i know this is a crazy intellectual question to ask youtube but what term should he have used like i'm curious for myself if you were to start again because because obviously he was looking for a shorthand to to communicate quickly with people in the context of a lecture what he was trying to say i think he could have used like institutional bullying you know but what do you i mean? don't know like i think the gripes that he had uh -huh. um about like compelled speech which I don't, I'm not really quite sure is a thing, but like the issue we had with Lindsay Shepard's case, for instance, was that the admin is exercising this power over a TA who's very powerless. And that's a systemic problem in universities where TAs don't have a lot of power or defense mm -hmm. and saying, okay, well, this is so-and-so's fault. This is the feminist's fault. He might've brought that again, that whole caricature, that whole tie-in. I don't think he would ever say this is trans people's fault that Lindsay Shepard was, I don't think he... No, but he thinks that it was the fault of, like, trans politics, and I just don't think that's the case. I think that, I think that this is very misplaced, and I think there's a reason why he picked up on defending Lindsay Shepard, but not Masuma Khan, who is another TA that got the same sort of, in the same trouble, but who got in trouble for saying, like, from the left rather than the right. And so I just find it very ideologically selective and opportunistic. I don't know. I just, I don't think he's like a fascist or anything of that no, respect, but not. I do, I see him as a kind of like televangelist or like a, <laughs> he's like a pop see, psychologist. 
He's yeah, a pop psychologist. I, I, like I see him what? as like the guy. We were psychologists. Who are you to say what's pop psychology? And I'm what's... just like I think I think when tele- she's saying televangelist, I like to think of pop psychologists. Like these are just blanket terms to describe people who are a little bit eccentric and maybe I talking got, a little bit I think rhetorically. He got tons of people that would never buy into pop psychology or televangelism to to listen to him. Sure, his... but is that a good thing? No, I don't think he's televangelist in I, in in content. I think he's televangelist in form. So like he kind of rhetorically, uh, yeah, like he uses people's like insecurities and like anxieties in order to like essentially well, make money. What is money. his goal? I I don't. Think I'm that... not describing uh, for, for his goal. I don't think his goal was making money. No, no, his goal. He he. That's not his goal. You're right. You need to read Maps of Meaning if you can. That is his first book. It is impenetrable, and it is just like I think it's like hundreds of pages of just drivel about his kind of insane modernist. Uh, conceptions of what you know what society is the male and the female order and chaos and these echoes uh, the echoes of this ideology is front and center like you can you can just hear it with everything he says as he criticizes postmodernism because postmodernism flies in the face of that it says that there are you know that every binary breaks down that binaries don't really exist in reality it's something that's constructed and I think uh-huh. that that scares him, you could say, but I actually think that just flies in the face of his ideology. And so he has to reject it academically. And he uses it. And I think he, to some extent, if you want to go really deep, I think he's using um, the current state of, you know, people being mad at social justice warriors as actually a weapon just to uphold his own ideology. I think his real gripe is with postmodernism, not with social justice warriors. I genuinely believe that. I don't actually think he cares about social justice warriors or the current I state think, of identity I politics. He, I think he I just think, really hates postmodernism. Because and, he, and because of academically it just flies in the face of his theories. I think he is genuinely scared of, of whatever um I think he thinks social justice warriors hate him. I mean I, if we want to talk really maybe. humanly and, and even if we the the term social justice warrior doesn't bring to mind a sophisticated person. The movement behind it is large enough and genuinely scary enough to him and his way of thinking that he does have a. So like I I tried to totally like get over him and like oh serious people don't talk about him but here we are and well because he's impacted I mean we're, like, we're not look, we're not serious people I just want to put that look, I'm a serious person guy listen <laughs> like. Like uh, American evangelicals are, are very ridiculous, but we still talk about them because they've impacted our culture. I don't. I don't. I know you I don't, but they I have they have impact on policy, and that's pretty that's relevant fine. for a lot of people. I think we were just trying to get more narrow. I think there was a. I think you brought up that we were we were kind of criticizing things very broadly, and that we should have get more specific. So I think we just got a little bit more specific. I don't think it's a big deal. I don't mind moving on from Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I used him as a point just to articulate what I think is an issue of people using like, like, jumping on these sort of like, norms that people are frustrated at maybe, in order to like, generalize about like an entire group of people, mm-hmm. um, or an entire movement, which I just think is very sloppy. And like, I wouldn't personally do that i would try to like get more into like the specific more even-handed and yeah um just like and i would expect someone in academia to do the same obviously they don't um yeah so i mean like i don't expect um others i don't think it's like bad that you know 
um some people read Peterson I think you know in the sense it might be good for some people to like clean their room and I was just cleaning my room actually on the break why not but um yeah I just have I have like grapes with him that might not be the traditional grapes that others have with him um but ultimately I think I I just see him more as like a Christian charlatan than I see (laughs) him as a threat and, and like I don't see yeah, him in the same light fair. that I would because some people call him like a fascist and who's a no, threat he's not, to you he's not a fascist he's Mila who's yeah. a threat to you who, like who do I think is a dangerous public figure mm-hmm. um Henry Kissinger yeah Henry Kissinger uh Hillary Clinton is um, Donald Trump a threat yes yes um who else uh with uh I mean, there's a lot. Can we, we Donald Rumsfeld? Like, we can name yeah, them. Rumsfeld, there's Dick a lot of poli- no, most of these are people with like power. Power, exactly. Yeah. Who's, who's 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 philosophically a threat? Who's someone who who you who who is sophisticated enough and who scares you? Heidegger. You have to name one. Heidegger. Yeah. Wait, is this That's just a really interesting who's, answer? Who, who's like impossible to read? Yeah, he's a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, black a book. real one. Black. Yeah, like yeah. he used to like rat out like like I don't think he's dangerous right now, but in his time he used to like kind of like he would like rat out his colleagues to the Nazis, like his Jewish colleagues. I think now I mean he There could are be... no threats. You have to name no, one. Sorry, sorry. Like a like... living philosopher. Yeah. But a threat how? Can you explain? Like you who 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 actually like when you hear them speak, you're like trigged to your bones and you're like fuck. That's my not a threat, dude. that's just disagreement, surely. Uh, you know, I think I think most people operate below that level of ideological pu- or intellectual purity. I think most people are genuinely threatened by people of a different view who sophisticatedly challenge their beliefs. Okay, so I, I will say, okay, here I'll, I'll give I'll yeah, give one ahead. example. Yeah. Samuel Huntington, I think, is a great example of uh, someone whose uh, philosophy—he's not even a philosopher; he's a political scientist—but someone whose theory has produced genuinely damaging consequences. So I think his theory has been adopted both by uh, the U.S. government and by ISIS. And so I think that that is very dangerous. So Samuel Huntington's theory is that there's like a clash, an irreconcilable clash between like Western civilization and uh, so-called Muslim Middle Eastern civilization. So this has been used by ISIS uh, in order to try to alienate Middle Eastern and Muslim diaspora into uh, not uh, integrating into Western society and into joining ISIS, killing people and so on. And then there's also, it, it also motivates uh, a generation of foreign policy makers that think that diplomacy is not possible and that we must go to war with all these countries instead of trying to talk out our disagreements. So I think Samuel Huntington is, would be my paradigmatic example. I think that's a perfect know. example. I think that's a really good example. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, if I can speak more broadly, I think the idea of what constitutes a threat and what doesn't constitute a threat. I think if somebody is genuinely speaking from a position where they're just expressing their ideological or philosophical belief because they think it's correct, I don't have a problem with it. Like, generally, even if it's Jordan Peterson, I think Jordan Peterson should have the right to say whatever he wants. I think most people should. Um, I think when we're talking about a threat, what what comes to mind are people who are not doing that 
intellectually honest work. What they really want to do is they want to radicalize people. They want to they want they're like pro they make pro nationalist arguments because they want nationalism to come back to the rise. They want partition. They want you know certain ideological goals. I think mm-hmm. and I think that's why Samuel Huntington is a good example. Um, I think there's and I think that's why most of the examples we can think of are political figures, people who are involved in foreign policy to some extent or another, or have had musings on them that are dangerous because they are prop they're they're forwarding a goal that yeah. is and, and some of them aren't some of them aren't overtly hateful. Like I, I another figure I would think of is Samantha Power, who's from Obama's administration. And she has a book about how she's like an idealist humanitarian. And like her whole thing, like, so she pushed for like wars in all kinds of countries, but it was under the guise of like, I'm a liberal humanitarian. Mm-hmm. I want to like bring love and democracy to all these countries. And so like her ideology is not hateful. It's not like ISIS. Uh, it, it, or it's not like, uh, it's not like uh, Huntington in the sense that it's like, not like, oh, we have an irreconcilable sort of clash and we need to rile people up against these people and so on but that's interesting i I would disagree a little bit more on power but i think this i actually i think that this this there's a divide between you and me on foreign policy that we haven't touched on yet but i know it exists because i listened to your previous stuff what 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 is what is this um do you want to get into it should we start talking about foreign policy um i think that well first i guess i'll start with where i agree with you um, and I think we can probably maybe all agree that, that America, the United States, is is an imperialist power and most of its ventures into foreign policy it, that you can list, if you can list them everywhere around the world, have been exercises in imperialism to um, consolidate their own power against the perceived threat of collectivism or communism if it's Cold War. It's, ca- it's in defense of capitalism at the end of the day. So I think we can agree on that. Can I nitpick? Yeah, go ahead. I think it'd be more just literally in the in the second in the day in defense of their own interests. I don't know if there was that much. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know. I don't. Maybe I don't. I see people taking capitalism seriously as kind of a caricature from the left, but maybe there are people that are like deeply passionate about capitalism. Right. I, I don't think they're passionate of of it for purely like like ideological reasons. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it's I think self interesting. So the U.S. economy is really dependent on imperialism. And so, like, I think it's more just that, like, all these communist countries that they have beef with, like Cuba, I'm reading another large book about Cuba because that's just what I do for fun. I love it. Um, they, they, they're, they're, <laughs> Their issue with them, so at first they did not dislike Castro, um, but their issue with it is that they're, the anti-imperialist countries stop giving them open access to their resources without any like they try to fight a power relationship because before cuba's kind of subjugated to the united states and like you know they the u.s has jumped cuba says how high kind of thing right and so the when these countries uh stop creating a climate where the u.s can just go in and take what it wants same with like nasser in egypt right yep. like uh that's another example that's when so it's not a capitalism crusade it's a self-interest thing so yeah, but yeah. but that but that is like imperialism, um, like the sort of extraction because it does have labor relations that per- pertain to capitalism. Like it's never been right, but the uh, motivation is is self interest. So yeah, you said and you used the phrase in defense of self interest, and I think the word defense is really key here. Wait, I did. <laughs> or who did? Mila. You did. No, Ken did. 
What did uh, I say this? You, just now, like when you were nitpicking, um, you, you said, in, you know, defense of self-interest. I, I think that's not an act. Okay. I, I, maybe you didn't mean to say it that way. But I think the word defense is really important because we have to remember the military, the U.S. military budget is called the defense budget. United States. I think that terminology is very deliberate. That's funny. Isn't yeah. it? That's deliberate. We don't talk about yes. that, but that's very yeah. deliberate. They talk about defense as though they are defending themselves, defending their own interests. But I think the I think they are they are you know propagating or forwarding uh, their own interests. When you think about oil, the talk about oil, the United States doesn't need oil. Like they're in fact they were like the main producer of oil for the longest time until you know the Gulf states things were started coming up and becoming refined a little bit more but they don't need oil they just want to control the oil and yeah, like so like exactly. that's i think like that's an important distinction they don't need it yeah. they just want to control it i got double nitpick no fair okay that's a good point um, um sorry go on go ahead no i feel like you had a larger arc no so uh-huh. i think yeah his 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 beef with it was that the term defense and i think this Again, this is something I've said before, but I think it's the use of the term defense is that for the U.S. to do this stuff, it needs to make it seem like they're always under attack. Israel does the same thing where it's like we're like victims. And so everything we're doing is just to defend ourselves and not for the sake of like empire or for the sake of like conquest. (laughs) Um, Like you never. But anyway, yeah, sorry. So so that's that's the stuff we agree on. Right. Yeah. And, and like, okay. So I just wanted to put that out there because we, I think we agree on that stuff. Uh, I think what we may not agree on as much, although I could be wrong, is what to do about it, at least from okay. a, from a UN perspective. Um, and I think, and I, 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 I don't want to start sounding like Chomsky, but uh, <coughs> Chomsky laid out. Um, Oh, you saw my disagreement with Chomsky. Oh, I actually did not see your disagreement with Chomsky. Oh, okay. So, okay. I, but, uh, so I don't know what your disagreement with Chomsky is. But um, what Chomsky pointed something out, I can't remember where I read it, but this, was, this is Chomsky's, isn't And he pointed out that um, there is a tension that exists between two fundamental principles of international law. Uh, the first is the UN Charter, which bars aggression uh, use of force or threats of use of force without uh, Security Council authorization. So that's okay, the, yeah. and the second is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which provides for or um, guarantees, if you will, rights to citizens against their own state. Yeah. So there's a tension between those two things. And it is yeah. from that tension which arises the whole edifice of uh, humanitarian intervention. Right? Yeah, the whole like question, R2P. exactly, R2P, yeah. he wrote so much on R2P, and this is exactly kind of the writings that I'm extracting from here. He was, mm-hmm. he was from R2P, if you remember, he was criticizing, he was saying R2P in principle, the, th- the way it was forwarded uh, from the General Assembly, I think, was a, was a good document, but it was the Evans Commission's version of R2P that was imperialist, because it essentially said that, you know, America and the United States and, and powerful countries can select where they where they where they can apply R2P and the Evans commission is doubly bad because Evans the person who wrote it was implicated with you know Indonesia and East Timor and he recognized that Indonesia is the ruler of East Timor and so he has a lot of Timorese but on his hand and we we know that because Australia had a lot of oil interests in Indonesia so there there was huge problems there from conflict of interest perspective but in principle I would agree with Chomsky that th- that we're talking about, we talk about rights a lot. We talk about human rights. We talk about the right of free speech or, you know, all the right for assembly. 
the right to an abortion, the rights don't mean anything if we don't talk about responsibility. If someone has a right and someone else has a duty or a responsibility to uphold or protect that right, otherwise the right doesn't exist. It's meaningless. Yeah. It's yeah. just words on a paper. So if, we, if the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is, at least according to Chomsky, the gold standard for what we should be applying and what is applied in human rights cases in front of the ICJ and other such things, and yes, they're applied you know, liberal, selectively, and yes, powerful people don't you know, adhere to them, and Nicaragua, and we can, we can get into all of it. Yeah, I was um, just going to bring up Nicaragua. Nicaragua. Yeah, I know, I know you were. <laughs> I was getting ahead of it. I was getting okay. ahead of it. Uh, but, but in principle, like, and this is kind of, this goes back to Syria a bit, because, you know, we're talking about Syria, and I don't know what mm -hmm. to do about Syria. Like, I don't know if you know what to do about Syria. But I have like, thoughts. I, I'm sure, and I'd love to hear them, right? Because I agree that what the United States was doing was basically just an extension of what they were doing in Libya. It was an extension of what they were doing in Iraq. It was an extension of, you know, it served Saudi and Turkish uh, and Israeli interests. Um, and, you know, and I agree, and that's bad, and they, should be, they shouldn't be intervening the way that they were. But at the same time, should there be, uh, you know, a peacekeeper, like, should there be a security council effort to, you know, administer some sort of diplomatic solution, or if it doesn't work, peacekeeping efforts to actual forcibly restrain both sides, like what happened in Kosovo, like like what happened in 2006 in Lebanon even. It wasn't, like, forcible. In 2006, they were able to negotiate it. But the mm -hmm. UN passed a Security Council resolution for that war that I fled from, where yeah. they essentially said that, okay, Hezbollah gets to disarm south of this, you know, it, actually the UN wants, Hezbollah wants no militias to have any weapons in Lebanon, which isn't going to happen. Yeah, but, they, like, but, they, but they came to a negotiation where yeah. Hezbollah was like, all right, we will disarm south of, you know, this river, but we're going to keep our armaments upwards. And in return, Israeli will withdraw its troops from southern Lebanon. And they were like, great. And they shook hands and they, they did it. Now, I generally obviously like that, at the very least, that stopped the bloodshed. Is it a permanent solution? Is it a perfect solution? no. But, you know, it's, it's not terrible, right? And so I think it's possible for the Security Council to do some good things. And when we get NATO involved, it gets more complicated. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I'm very conflicted about it. I don't know I, I what know to I know what do. you're saying. And, like, I, I totally get this argument. And I think, like, most civilians just want to see a stop to the bloodshed. And that's that. Um, I don't, like, obviously now it's good that Israel and Lebanon are not fighting. But I do think that, like, you know, Israel has come out on top in a lot of ways. Yeah, like, I, I think agree. that these negotiations, that they, they're not, they're never on equal footing to begin with. So I think, first of all, the UN would require restructuring. So the, like, the veto powers that the Security Council has, for instance, is always going to privilege, like, like, the US is going to veto everything when it comes yeah. to holding Israel accountable. Like, that's just a fact, right? And so, first of all, I think, like, you need to undermine u.s hegemony or just like mm -hmm. which is a totally different question of things yeah. when it comes to syria i think we're at a stalemate right now there's a few problems that i think we need to deal with and so one thing is that like what happens if the government is not good but they're popular so the fact that like there are people who like and are devoted to Assad poses an issue right because they're going to be resentful if you've someone forcibly goes in and takes down the government and i feel like that's going to create radicalization but yeah um and there's already an anti-american sentiment as you know in the levant yeah um and so like i think the left 
has screwed up in Syria with the protests to begin with. And this is kind of something, this is a theory I argue in my thesis. And so I'm kind of viewing things from that lens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, when you do a protest um, or when you're trying to like do something as big as topple a government, which first of all, I'm not convinced that the protests started off that way. Um, they started off with initial demands. Not all of them were, I want a new government. Um, some of them yeah. were, I want you to release prisoners. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But I think also um, the issue is that like when you're doing a social movement against the government, there's going to be a ton of different people of different stripes against the government. So there's going to be like leftists. And then there's also going to be um, in the Middle East case, there's going to be like religious conservatives yeah. as well who have traditionally been enemies of government in places like Syria uh, or even Lebanon in some cases. Um, And so you have that issue. And the problem is, is that the left in the Middle East, like they're not well backed. They're not maybe save the Kurds. Now they have some backing, but for the most part, like these progressive movements, they're not materially um, on top. Whereas like these Islamist groups, they're always very well funded and very well connected. And so I fear that if you start this or you ignite this protest, you kind of do a lot of the heavy lifting for these Islamist groups who are going to come out on top of you anyway. And then they become the face of the resistance. So now you see that like the only powerful players remaining in Syria right now that are a challenge to the government is Al Qaeda and its affiliates. Right. Yeah. And, and, I honestly, I gen- like, whereas I have a ton of criticisms of Assad, I, he is not my ideal. Uh, I, my family. And, oh, no. Oh, my, Don't yeah, be an no. Assad apologist. Oh, no. The internet yeah, no. will destroy you. On my mom's side, my family um, actually fought against Assad, mm-hmm. the seniors' occupation Office. in Lebanon. Yeah, exactly. Um, and one of my cousins was imprisoned by them and, like, faced a lot of shit. So, like, it's... Like I'm not a fan, yeah. But um, but I do think that it is preferable to having Islamist control of Syria. Oh yeah, I- I'm totally with you there. And I think it's preferable for Lebanese people as well because if Syria falls to Islamists, that's not going to be good for for Lebanon. Either. I I I totally agree with that, and I think yeah. I'd even go further in saying like not just is it that left leftist movements in the Middle East aren't well funded, they are actively defunded and undermined mm-hmm. by Western powers. Exactly. Like, like it's, it's worse always. than that. It's worse. Yeah. And then the Islamic um, regimes are always well funded and, you know, provided for by the same Western powers who purport yeah. to, and, and, and that's, that's been, that's literally been documented. So it, it's, yeah. it's pretty awful. And it's, it's a crisis. Like, I mean, you know, you have the U S gave a billion dollars to Al Nusra yeah. And and Israel is is treating Al Qaeda soldiers, and you have like you just have all these different. So you have all this, and then yeah, the leftists are being undermined at every turn. Yeah, always. And and I get your reticence to have someone like Samantha Power be in charge of that situation. Like I I can understand that perspective, um, and I obviously agree. I think everyone can agree that we. Well, actually, I don't know. Maybe not everyone can agree, but you know, the idea that what's better, a you know, a, a totalitarian fascist government that's killing, it's, it's committing genocide, or an Islamic fundamentalist regime that is, you know, bent on establishing a caliphate. 
Um, yeah. So it's like, okay, that's, you know, <laughs> that's like not Biden versus Trump. Not everyone agrees with me, though. Not everyone. I, I know, like, there's a I lot know. of people that do think that an Islamist government is preferable. Honestly, like, I can't, I can't argue against that, right? Honestly, like, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe an Islamist government would be better. Like, okay, just, so this is kind of goes back to UN Security Council stuff and the United Nations role in, quote unquote, humanitarian intervention and back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Geneva Convention to some extent. Because when we look at, like, Syria, when we look at what happened in Iraq, of course, like, barring the, the whole mess that happened in Iraq with the political case that was fabricated, weapons of mass destruction that went there, blah, 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 all that shit. Um, but from a human rights perspective, if, you know, Mexico started committing genocide, if, like, Mexico suddenly had a, a new leader who started killing people, like, literally committing genocide... The UN would literally be forced to act. We're undersigners of the Geneva Convention, which has the Genocide Commission, a convention in it. So it's like, what are you supposed to do, right? Like, I get that, like, you know, the, the US is a terrible, like, NATO in general is a terrible administrator of justice. It will always be uneven, and they will never intervene where they should. Like, there are, there are countless examples. I brought up Kosovo earlier, that was Bosnia, like, where they just stood by while people were getting massacred. Where they and the reason they did it was because it didn't further their geopolitical interest. So they are selective where they interfere, and it, they always interfere in places where it will benefit them geopolitically. But again, from my perspective, it's like, well, damn! Like, there's people who are being genocided and driven you know, out of their country, and millions of refugees are being generated. Like, I just want, you know, from it's desperation. I just want something to be done. And to some extent, I can sympathize with people who say, you know what, fuck it. Let let the Islamist, you know, fundamentalists take hold in Syria and let's just get rid of this dictatorship and replace it with something that's maybe worse, maybe better. The evil you don't. It's the same thing. It's the Trump-Hillary thing. It's the same. Th it's the evil you don't know. It's like, let's just try it. Right. <laughs> I don't know about that though, because I do I don't I think these Islamist groups are far more rogue. These guys these Islamist groups are like nihilists almost. Yeah, like they, yeah. they 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 have apocalyptic fantasies and they literally like we think Assad has no regard for human rights. These guys are far worse. And like it's it's not just that, it's like, you know, Syria has vulnerable minority populations, um, like Christians is yeah. and um they like again for all its faults they are still they still receive like a minimal amount of protection in the sense that like they're not being killed for being christian um if we if you put islamists in power there's going to be a systematic genocide of christians um and kurdish people and yeah. basically every every enemy of these islamist groups i i think what would be preferable is to have like de-escalation and i think like a uh, another election in syria as like lib and normie as that election. sounds yeah but i mean like there would have to be some sort of, like if you look at tunisia as an example sure. like they pulled off sort of like they have seriously reformed since 2011 mm -hmm. without a lot of outside force and I, or, or you recalibrate, you say, okay, this war has been lost, that's it. And then you have um, leftists have time to recalibrate and try again in a more strategic and organized manner. Because I think 
the reason why this like mass killing is going on is because it's in the context of a war. Like I don't think that people are going to be people are killed indiscriminately right now. So also I'm not sure if like genocide's the right term because genocide ref- refers to discriminate killing whereas right now it's like okay there's rebels in this area we're just going to carelessly bomb it. Sure. Uh, massacre. Um, I'll use the word massacre. Massacre. Yeah, massacre is a better term. So you have these these uh you have indiscriminate <laughs> people dying in large numbers. Yeah, sure. Um, you have these indiscriminate mass killings. Um, and I mean, in a sense, it's like, I think if, I think de-escalation is the most important thing right now. And I'm not sure that like an American presence would de-escalate. I think it would only make things worse. What do you think about like a UN presence? Do you think that would de-escalate or that would make My concern about a UN presence is that it would just be the u.s light <laughs> um, um that's fair i think ultimately like it's up to syrian people to determine their fate and not me um but my like i think the priority should first be making sure that islamists don't take government okay. i think that's that's the most concerning thing to me at this point um because we don't want the levant to like fall to like caliphate i think that would be very concerning and uh, so like i I think it's a probably like i think you have a very intelligible position and a very respectable one i i think it's i think there's a lot of stuff i can we we probably keep talking about this for hours the one Mm -hmm. thing that i will point out that i think people from the outside might look in and say oh that's hypocritical um is that we were just talking about you know samantha power and and like the idea that exporting western values shouldn't you know is actually a kind of not a good thing you know it's oh we're, we're just imp- like someone might hear what you're saying and so and, and go oh what happened to imposing liberal values being a bad thing why are we imposing our democracy if syria wants to be a levant you know if levant wants to be a, a islamic state what who are we to tell them that we can't be right yeah, so are, aren't you just participating in that it's right? just i think that it would be bad for middle east christians um and um, i know yeah close to quite a bit and i think that that um and i think that a lot of middle east christians would agree with me as well that um i think that like they're a very unprotected group yeah and that if we were if there were to be an islamist government and i also am not convinced that an islamist government is like not western values as well like i don't see i don't see how like First of all, Islam is extremely influenced by the same people that influence Christianity. So like Aristotle and the Greeks. Yeah. Um, also, the religious conservatism in Islam is very similar to the religious conservatism in Christianity as well. So first, I guess my opposition in general is just to religious governments. I think they're bad for the world. And I think that every society is susceptible to having a religious government. I think that also the anti-West posturing that Islamist groups do is completely opportunistic and fake. Sure. Um, and I actually, I actually agree save with that. Hezbollah. I, I think I Hezbollah is one exactly. of the only Islamist groups that don't uh, kiss the feet of yeah. the West when they need to. Um, but these other groups, like they don't care about the anti. Like they'll use stuff like clash of civilizations to get people on their side. At the end of the day. Uh, they are perfectly willing to side with Western powers sure. and take, you, you know. Okay, so would you make a distinction between, like, 
the higher ups and the foot soldiers like or what do you mean like the people, like the people the accepting rank, money or no the, the lowest ranked people you, you don't think they have genuine like anti-west no i think they they could yeah okay but but, but but i don't think it's like integral like i think that's how they get recruited like yeah. i think like they're resentful yeah. and then these people will be opportunistic and be like oh i see you hate the west like join our join mm-hmm. our cult and then um and then it goes from there but i i i don't think that an islamist government is necessarily a non-western government okay i, I think we yeah. can plant a flag on that um at least from my perspective i think i know understand where our disagreement is and i think you encapsulated it very well when you said that you believe that any religious government essentially theocracies are immoral and well not you didn't say immoral but you said that you don't think theocracies should exist religious governments shouldn't exist um or at least governments operating on you know what i'm saying i, I i'm not trying to straw man you i, I you know i know what you yeah. said i'm just trying i mean to, i i'm not saying this uh, like i don't have like the like i'm not like trying to be edgy atheist yeah, yeah, about this. Yeah, yeah. i just think that um and I don't believe in doing this by force. Like, I don't think that, like, I don't want to go to, like, Iran and take their government down. Yeah. I think that's very stupid. Um, but, and I also don't think Iran is, like, as rogue as, like, the Saudis, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, I think Islamism is multifaceted and it's, uh, you know, it, it, it really varies. But I think that uh, not a religious government per se, but a nihilistic uh, sort of... Like a messianic, like, apocalyptic... Apocalyptic government, government, I think, is a terrible idea in all respects. And that includes U.S. Uh, evangelical conservatives. You would um, like Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> um, I know. But, I was a big yeah. Hitchens fan I, I, back, in the, Hitchens back fan. in the day. Yeah, before you um, um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but I will say so. My my actually position is slightly closer to Hitchens on that, which is that my my opposition isn't to specifically messianic apocalyptic regimes. My opposition is to totalitarian regimes. I think totalitarianism is the root of that. I think like when I hear that religion, like and this is and this is just a point of disagreement. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I just think we disagree. Um, mm-hmm. But I think when you say that a religious government is bad, I think you're almost there. I think the the truth is that totalitarian governments is bad, and a religious government is just a manifestation of totalitarianism. Uh, whether or not that should be intervened with using force, I think that's not a question that I can answer. I think that's more to do with diplomatic international law and something that I wish we had better systems yeah, than, 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 than NATO to to work with. But yeah, so I, I would levy the same criticism I have against Bashar as I would against Kim Jong-un. I think neither should exist, and right. I, and I would and I would accept this, and I I consider religious uh, theocracy to be a, a lower form of that. So I actually would accept that. To, in my on my scale, it's an quote unquote an upgrade. Even and I and your scale, it's the other way around. I'm about to open up another can of worms, and we don't need to discuss yeah, it. But my don't. issue with that is that I don't like the term totalitarianism. I think it's like not very well defined. Sure. Um, and I feel like it's kind of been used in, by to the advantage of right wingers to kind of mesh uh, communism and Nazism as the same thing when they're demonstrably not. Sure. Um, and so that's kind of my opposition to the term totalitarianism. And so like my I mean, I am not um, 
I, I wouldn't consider myself like an authcom or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> what is an uh, authcom? Authoritarian communist. Okay. But I do have like sympathy, not sympathy, but I understand when communist governments um, who are actively fighting American imperialism um, end up like being tough on its citizens that collaborate with the U.S., if that makes sense, which I think I is the, yeah. happens a lot. Um, and I understand why, like, North Korea, for instance, is as, like, secretive as it is and as private as it is because a third of their population was wiped out by the U.S. Um, and I, I, and additionally, I think that because it's so private, because of this, like, historical trauma, it's very difficult for us to actually know what's going on there. So I kind of avoid making totalizing no, statements about them as well, because I don't think like, it's just, I, I don't feel like, I think that's an epistemic issue. And I think, okay. but I understand why that epistemic issue exists. And it's because of us imperialism. Okay. Like, um, obviously like I, I, that doesn't mean I think Kim Jong-un is like a good person, yeah, but I, um, but I do think that like imperialism is a very relevant factor here. And, um, but anyway we can so we yeah can, that, that uh, is a can of worms a i won't i won't unpack it i, I will okay. not other than to say that i i disagree okay um i won't unpack <laughs> it um it is we'll discuss another episode sure okay yeah, yeah. we, uh, we didn't get to talk work? about sex and christianity which is what i wanted to ask okay, Ken about okay so, so that's things. that's that's the next thing we'll move on to. <laughs> okay right, we can have an extra minutes. long special episode i know i know about four minutes worth of things about sex so let's do it okay it can just be long so we're moving on to our next topic, which is Christianity and sex. So uh, I'll start by asking Ken a question. Um, okay. Because when I listened to the, one of your episodes, you, you were, I think you were drunk. Um, oh, fuck. But you said, that, you said that you believe that to some extent that um, some, like, I think you said homosexual unions or something to that effect are kind of immoral to, in some way. And I just wanted to hear your expostulation on that i wanted to get a little bit more perspective okay so first of all i wasn't drunk for that episode <laughs> oh you remember i was totally sober okay. um so i've been uh, during the course of these first couple episodes i've been saying things that i feel some sort of personal integrity need to say sure. uh, so that's not necessarily a belief i have but it is a belief i'm trying to reserve the space in my mind to consider okay um so I was raised Catholic. I was like the hero of religion class who, when the teacher was floundering, would come up with something like, you know, for a grade six or like kind of thoughtful to beat back the heathen crowd. Mm -hmm. um, AKA me. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and then recently my faith has failed, like everything else. Um, Oh, thank you for thank you for that. I need. I, I mean need that genuinely. Of, I'm a pluralist. Yeah, no, man. no, no, totally. I, I need lots that... of thoughts and prayers. I appreciate the goodwill. So, what what's the question? I just started uh, talking. What, about what is your theory. kind of? How do you like? My question was on homosexual unions and whether or not they're immoral, because that is a sentence that left your mouth. Um, it was. Yeah. So I was wondering, denying. like, if you could maybe. I, I'm 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 saying I just want to charitably kind of try to understand your position on it, mm -hmm. if if it um, is communicable. Okay, so. There is, like, I was building a, uh, all I can talk about is my own, like, journey, and there's not a lot of... I don't of... mind, yeah. I think talk okay. about your journey. So, as much as I can summarize 
my journey, I was building a semi-coherent Catholic worldview mm-hmm. that was um, basically I believed I believed I believed in God and I believed the Catholic Church was God's church, regardless of how much it's fucked up or how much it will continue to get wrong. It was like let's say it's sixty percent. Like I'll I'll give them a real credulity. And and then I married some of that to what I was comfortable with. I think it's as simple as that. And what I saw as a what was attractive to my intuition as an ordered world with with marrying as much freedom for the individual as with some kind of gender rule that made some kind of sense, if that if that makes sense at all. A little bit, yeah. Uh, do, do you think that I, that's something that is generalizable? That that's something that most people do who are in your position, or like, let's say Catholics or religious. Think most people do this, or do you think that you're kind of more of a special case that what you've done here is something kind of unique? So my first instinct, as pure self-preservation in these 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 strange times, times yeah. is uh, <laughs> is uh, my whatever flaws in my thinking are, are generally mirrored by the general populace of any, any identification or political stripe. Uh, I would, then I would go on to say there's a great gulf in the center of my thinking and, and, and we're inclined even to internal binaries because it's neat. I don't know why, but we're like, I have a, a left thing and a right thing in my mind, or maybe that's just how it's framed in my mind because of the language I inherited. But, but there's a big gulf in the center where I, I fail to articulate myself as much as I'd like to. And then I would say, and then I would say, even I think this is generally true, even if, if, if at, at any swath in human history, people are falsifying their preference and paying lip service to the ascendant side, they, they do identify with the side. And it, it, even that, those whole gymnastics beyond that, it affects their thinking. Um, uh, and then I would like, what, what, what was the question? Do, do I think I'm special? Do you think that your take <laughs> is unique in that? Do you think that's something that normally happens? Because my, my instinct is that it does. My instinct is that everybody kind of takes whatever belief, whether it's religious or philosophical, whatever ideology they have, and then they kind of imprint their own worldviews onto them and try to justify them through the lens of their ideology. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if that's what you're describing um, and if that's, you know, if, if you recognize it in other people. Oh, I think my thinking is so not unique. And there's a bunch of disaffected kind of like Catholic, let's say Catholic Westerners or 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 a whole generation. This isn't even unique to this generation, but I was going to say like people who feel that they've lost something of their parents' beliefs. And it's kind of sad, but they're kind of mostly glad to be free of it. But they're not really sure what they think, and they're certainly not speaking publicly about all that doubt. They're they're just like they'll they'll appropriate whatever they want from 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 let's say LGBTQ causes, and then they'll they'll pay lip service where they think they need to, and then they'll have in their own head they think they have a a, a nest for coherent world building, but it's really not. It's it's really flawed by all these performances that they do for their own the sake of the way they view themselves and the sake of the way others view them i i think i'm not yeah i think there's a whole generation of let's say young catholic people who are like like yeah no we shouldn't do like fucked up treatments to gay people but also isn't it nice to have like the family when the postcard in front of the house but also we don't want to limit i i yeah no i think in general just because of like averages i'm my way of thinking is totally ununique and we're moving into an era where people are at least trying to be more articulate and honest about 
but all those those biases and whatever and i'm i know i'm not alone in in my thinking and confusion that's that's pretty amazing actually because like now i totally understand where why you like jordan peterson or why not you like but you know i, I understand his appeal i feel i feel an obligation here's another thing too beyond how much i like him or dislike him so first level 12 Rules for Life is a, is a helpful book. It's a good book. You, you take it with a grain of salt. You ignore some things. You say, okay, okay, Uncle Jordan, whatever, for some things, right? And then other things, you totally take what you want and you say, this, this I feel very strongly and he's much more articulate, at least in this moment, than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, I think he's a likable guy and a good speaker. So get some popcorn, watch a YouTube video. Okay, that was interesting. Uh, yeah, I think the fact for, that he's hot really makes it. I don't think he's that hot, but but I, I don't think, think he's, he's hot at all. He's, he's a good I think he's kind of hot. He, he's well dressed. <laughs> I like his suit. I I appreciate that it's a good suit. Ah, I had something else. Hey, you're talking damn. about uh, you know, twelve rules for life. Uh, oh know. right. Oh, and beyond all that, I was recently going over. So uh, the way I I see his narrative, I feel like I didn't stand up for him enough. More than I would even want to, because mm-hmm. when he starts getting called a Nazi, in in in, it's very personally offensive. It's very dangerous. The amount, I'm not saying sophisticated leftists yeah. were doing this, but but there was a deluge. And and Google, like every, it, it worked for everybody. It worked for ad sellers. It worked for people that wanted you to click. It it was almost like a perfect conspiracy. Put Jordan Peterson Nazi in the headlines get a comet shit store like you know what i mean it, it, i know what you mean and i i can i think agree with you that we live in a rhetorically heightened time and i don't think jordan peterson is a nazi i don't think he's a fascist i think he's just um a person with an opinion that's that, that i disagree with but i see its appeal like i like mm. now but I, I just want to return to the catholic thing um because i think like i understand that now like what you said uh i don't have a lot of catholic friends in my life anymore uh, and so I haven't heard that articulated, especially Western, you know, what you were talking about, this kind of Western disaffected youth who um, who seem to be, you know, who are glad to have let go of something from their parents, but still feel like maybe they lo- they had nothing to replace it with. And then here comes, you know, Mr. Family Values with, with a, a nice, cohesive, intelligible argument about why X, Y, Z. But by the way, I have a signed copy of 12 Rules for Life if you, if you wanted. <laughs> so actually, don't ask how I got it. He's, <laughs> I'm not going to touch that. But um, well, how'd you get it? Now you have to okay. say it. So I live with a film critic who is like e-famous. He has like a million subscribers on YouTube. Okay. Uh, and uh, he has a large Twitter following. And what Jordan Peterson has been doing is that anyone who like interacts with his profile uh, he just who has a high enough large enough following he just sends them his assigned copy of his book uh unsolicited uh because good praxis. it is good praxis isn't it leftists should do that huh? yeah they should yeah. um so that's how i have that um but uh but no i think that speaks something to a real uh i think that speaks to a real you know disaffected problem i think there are people who you're describing who feel the way that you do um, and I think that that shouldn't be ignored. I think that there are a lot of, um, quote unquote, progressive or woke, uh, you know, dialogues where, um, you know, I, th- I think terms are th- like, now I'm sounding like the opposite of what I sounded at the beginning of this conversation, where terms are thrown al- around a little bit too carelessly and a little bit without any regard for how people might interpret them who are in different situations. Like, I can definitely understand how a term like white privilege can seem... Um, polarizing to someone who feels like you know they've 
they haven't really inherited anything from their parents or who've been disaffected, uh, who used to be or losing their faith. Like, I can understand how that term can be polarizing. But now I can also see how, like, those people could feel like they're being personally attacked by that. Uh, you know, I mean, I, it's a, it's a, this is kind of humorous, but it's a whirlwind to lose your faith, lose your privilege. What do you have left? No, just kidding. But, um, like, it, it's interesting to the context that I, like, when I sit down with any of Mila's friends in the context like this, it's, like, so pleasant and I listen. If, like, there's, like, a weird sort of cliquey party vibe, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's so dependent on how you, you learn right. about these terms. Like, if you're trying to get to work and you're, like, annoyed and you're late and you hear some hysterical radio report you're gonna be like well fuck that right but if yeah. you yeah maybe listen to a podcast I, I that's why i really like the, the podcast medium yeah i agree i think it's a good medium for hashing out differences and stuff mm-hmm. um all right so how does that fit into um i mean i, I just want to know more about like how you've tied how you because inter- you went to a catholic school i guess you both did too i mean i did too but not for as long as you guys did you guys were still doing it to some extent mm-hmm. to, to much longer than i was um, and I, cause I really want to know, I'm curious now, cause by the time I left that environment, the topic of, you know, sex or gay people or what have you hadn't been broached yet. Uh, and yeah, I'm no, curious how you guys got, got, you know, introduced to that information and what did that do to your worldview? When I was there, I was, so I was in a grade eight and nine, uh, at an all boys Catholic school. It wasn't broached. And then I was in grade 10 at a different Catholic school that, and then I stopped going to school. So it, maybe I just missed it. You know what I mean? Maybe. Mm. I'm not sure if it's still it's still very not openly discussed. I could ask my sisters who just graduated, but yeah, I don't I don't know. Maybe the I mean I can offer because I I finished the school that Ken left. Um, So like we we learned about it, and I think they've changed the curriculum since then. Um, But we learned that like basically like it was like don't hate the sinner, hate the sin kind of thing. And um, so I don't know, I found it a bit patronizing because it was kind of like, it's not your fault that you're gay, but like you can't act on it. And like, oh, okay, I guess all of this that you're saying, I'm nodding my head with because I guess I did, but it wasn't so. Yeah. But but one of my favorite, my favorite moment, this is kind of a tangent, but I think you'll find it funny, guys. Like there's the we had this really passionate conservative religion teacher and he was like like he would share stuff from like matt walsh and stuff oh god and i know it was a lot but he has a good he has a good heart um (laughs) but yeah so he was like going on about how um trying to argue that like being gay is like too normalized in proportion to like the population of gay people so he was like how like what percentage of canada do you think is gay and this guy in the class who is gay, like I think, knew how to oh, push this guy's buttons, and he was like, no. he was like sixty percent. <laughs> <laughs> and the teacher just flipped, and oh, he was like, sixty. Like this is a this product of the sick brainwashing from the liberal oh, media. No. But it was really it funny. But sad. but but I think okay, like the way that I learned it was just like having sex outside of marriage is a no-no and like therefore if like and you can only get married if you're like a het and therefore like non-heteros can't have sex because they can't get married that was like how i learned it essentially but it was like it too it's actually amazing people don't know like that much even but i mean obviously like i reject a lot of like things from that um 
because I don't have a problem with premarital sex at all. Um, so nor am I like hyped on the concept of marriage to be with. So obviously, like I think if you're not Christian, these arguments are not compelling to you. I mean, but... they're they're so compelling to me, <laughs> but just in a different way. Okay, uh, they're compelling because I want to know more about them. Okay, like, yeah, yeah. Uh... No, I mean more like <laughs> they're not like they're logically limited to yeah, Christians. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, Ken, do you like? How do you feel about that? Because I think that Mila is saying this in a very critical tone, but uh, I was also kind of suggested to me that maybe you're not at, you think that there's some usefulness or you're not as critical as that to say that maybe there's some usefulness to the, perhaps the rule against premarital sex or what have you. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a part of me that's totally like, she's saying all the things in a critical voice and I'm like nodding my head like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> and then there's another part, part of me that's like, I don't, I, I feel beaten down. And there's another part that's like my, my, I have no, I didn't, I didn't have the integrity that I planned to. And I don't know what I think anymore. So mm -hmm. basically, I don't know what I think. It's kind of a yeah. Um. Okay. I mean, it's. I mean, there, there is obviously you're having a crisis of faith, though. So maybe you yeah. need to find Jesus. If if I was if I was like a evangel evangelist, that's oh how it, that's why I would tell you. But I'm I am genuinely sorry. I really hope that um you know you you come out of it feeling yeah. better or feeling Thank actualized. You. I don't know what that's going to look like for you, but yeah. I'm sure maybe there'll be a way for you to square that off with um, whatever your identity is, whatever you feel like you are um, inside. I did these have more I questions like... about sex, but sorry, go on. Yeah, the, these days I live, I kind of, I mostly toe a secular line with a grumble. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wear a pink headband, uh, hoping someone will call me a faggot so I can fight them. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's That's what I do these days. Have you ever exactly. read? Have you ever read Out of Curiosity any of like the so-called Four Horsemen of the Counter Apocalypse, like Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris or you know Daniel Dennett or Richard Dawkins? Have you ever like read those authors? No, I'm I'm kind of like aware of them peripherally, but yeah, no, I don't think so. It might be a good intellectual exercise because they, I think, I think you might be able, like like with Jordan Peterson, I think it's very similar. Like you were describing, there's some things where. You can pick and say, okay, like I can just, you know, you're more intelligible on this than I am, or okay, this is just you being an idiot, or this is something I agree with. I think there's a lot of intellectual, um, you know, enlightenment, if you will, that can be gleaned from from some of their writings. I so I had a very similar experience as Ken, but not with religion, with uh, libertarianism. Oh. Like I, I kind of flirted with libertarianism a little bit, and it was because of Ron Paul. And so I had this desire to keep my parents like views, but like also liberate myself from them. And Ron Paul was the perfect guy for that. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because my first ever political opinion, very like, uh, it's, it's such a cliche, but because based on all my other views, but it was being anti-war. That was my first ever political okay. view. And just, you know, like I was very involved in foreign policy since I was in grade five. Like I was very anti-war, which is understandable when you come from like a Lebanese family. For sure. And and so I think like, you know, like my first, like I heard about war when I was very young because like my dad talked about it. And so like, I was like, you know, this sucks. I hate it. And so that was like my first, you know, sort mm -hmm. of political coming opinion. into politics. Yeah. 
And so um, something I hated about American politics was how everyone just seemed, you know, whether they were Democrat or Republican, they were just like, I, they just wanted to go to war. So Ron Paul came and he spoke against that. He also was pro-legalizing weed, which was a big thing that I was into as a teenager was being like, we need to legalize all drugs. Um, like I was very anti-prohibition. I still am. I'm not a pro. I'm very anti-prohibition. Like I'm, I think mm. it's not good. Um, but so there's that component. But then he also had the economic conservatism of my parents that I thought that if I espoused, I would have like parental approval of me. You know, like I still felt like this, like, like validation from my parents while still being able to like care about the issues that I cared about, which was like that I really cared about, which was like war and whatever. Now, obviously, as I read some more and I realized that like this economic views I had contradicted my anti-imperialism. Yeah. Um, because a lot of the things that Ron Paul supports economically can give rise to imperialism in a very easy Uh, manner. Notes of approval, I think. (laughs) No, yeah, go ahead. No, so I mean, that's how I like, like, you know, stopped like being a libertarian, but I, I, I understand what the point isn't libertarianism versus communism here. My, My point is that I um I understand where Ken's coming from in this respect yeah. because I I felt it myself and I have a lot of sympathy for people that are are going through that. Did you um, feel, do you feel like you replaced it with anything? Like by the time you were out of it, do you feel like there was something else that took place of that fire that you had for libertarianism that you were able to redirect your energy toward? What do you mean, like fire? That I, I mean, like, uh, like I'm talking about. Do you mean like with validation from like to some extent? I, th- I think it's something. Yeah. That... So I do. Um, this is like really funny, and I think I kind of started developing this in high school as well. But I really now this is like deep psychoanalysis. I'm so hours. ready. I did it to myself, so you guys have to do it to yourself. Yeah. Either. Now I have to do it too. So I think that I got really close to like adult male authority figures because I complimented my work or that guided me in my work I I, I saw a pattern of myself doing that sometimes unintentionally um where like usually teachers or professors not close in like an inappropriate way just like I would just find myself being mentored by a lot of like older authoritative adult males Mm -hmm. and I realized it was because like I just was always buying for like my dad's approval as a teenager like that was like so and like I just wanted him to so like if I would espouse like economic conservatism then like he would be like yes good you know whereas like and like that was like a kind of validation and or like my interest in math like in high school I was very into math and that's funny because I tutor in math but like I in high school like I was very into math and like I think it's like you know similar to that's my dad's interest like that's what I want to realized and so in university like i mean i got very this not like a daddy issues thing it's just (laughs) like um but if you are listening to this don't worry i value our relationship i just (laughs) i just i just noticed that like i um not just one but multiple you know like it's just it was just like multiple times like i would just connect with like these like these they had to be like authoritative male figures that were also like judging me in some respect like like commenting on my work yeah and i they would always be like strict like like my dad you know like they wouldn't be like the the chill guys it would be like the ones that are like strict and so no wonder you think jordan peterson's hot (laughs) yeah (laughs) you're fucked jordan peterson's not hot 
Um, is you in the context of what she said? Yeah, no, no, yeah, totally. This is it makes especially sense. funny given that I dated Gael's brother, but this is... He did date my brother, who is the yeah. opposite of all of that. He is like... The, like, I don't think he is a male authority... Like, he's not an authority... He is like... Yeah. But like, yeah, he um, was like, from my perspective, he's just, you know gentle and kind and like open and non-judgmental like he's like kind of the opposite of a strict middle eastern dad yeah yeah, but, yeah, yeah. and I that's it there's own it's funny because we can i can draw that my own psychoanalysis of axel and we could merge <laughs> it with your psychoanalysis and we could analyze your relationship in like some freudian way it would be insane oh my God. but let's not, not do that right now <laughs> um... Um, yeah that's not okay. but 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 yeah though no, i think it's funny that now we're, we're talking but but yeah. yeah i i the jordan peterson hot thing is kind of ironic but yeah. I, yeah. I, I do you think he has like in your irony he does have like a look that i'm like god he, damn it yeah. how well i can't imagine it all right it doesn't matter he's well dressed okay it's fine yeah, it's fine it's, it's the, fine it's different shorts for business folks i and literally I, find fursuit cost fursuits hot so it's fine I'm not judging your. <laughs> I, I see. I see someone in Arcanine fursuit, and I go, "That's hot." Arcanine, yeah, Arcanine so, is definitely. Up there. Wait, what's yeah, Arcanine? It's a Pokemon. Oh, is that like a dog? It's a yeah. It's a dog Pokemon. What's What's that psychic? You know, Ralts. The The evolutions of Ralts are hot as fuck. Uh, what you, you might you might yeah I'll we'll uh, talk to me later. Okay. Um, talk to, see me afterwards. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, we office could. hours. But I actually uh, wanted to I wanted to say I wanted to circle hours. back. The podcast. Okay, go on. Uh, go on. I just wanted to circle back to Kent because I, I think that's a, that was really heartening story from Mila about um you yeah know, her I've own never struggle heard, with I've something. I've known you so long and you laid it out so I never saw any of that. I'm I'm so blind. You totally saw it. No, I, I really didn't. Not like that. It's like when you listen to your friends talk to other people, you learn more about them sometimes than when you mm. ask them how they're doing. I could totally get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to know from like Ken's perspective, like, because th- you just talked a bit about libertarianism, which we're not going to pack in this episode because I have a lot to say about it. But uh, but kind of relating to Catholicism, you're kind of empathizing with um, Ken's current kind of situation, trying to come to terms with his you know faith. And you're, you had to come to terms with your kind of libertarianism to some extent. And then eventually you got rid, you kind of discarded it. Not that that's where it's going with Ken, but like, then you re- you kind of replaced it with something. And I was mm. wondering, like, what, what do you, do you see a path forward like for you? Do you think there's redemption there, Ken? Or do you think that there's, this is kind of a crossroad and it's time to find something else? I think, I think this, it's indicative of general Western, Western, like focus on the individual. Oh yeah. Um, like I, my narrative is that I want to be a famous musician, right? Like the most cliched Western individual narrative. Yeah. I want to be special, right? So I think a lot of this crisis of faith is made heavier by how much I focus on what I believe. So what I can like say on a podcast and be the coolest, most disagreeable guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of that helps at all. So I like in theory, again, tying in ironically, I have a great framework of getting outside of yourself is, is a huge part of happiness. But I don't do that, right? I just try and write songs all day. Sure. Um, so definitely the path forward of a mature adult is more, I don't know, I wanted to say that most people don't really know what they believe. Like looking around me, it seems that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. But then, but then some temperaments, like a, a theoretical framework of what they believe is probably less important to them. Yeah, mind. they just want to get through the day. They just want to have enough to yeah. get them through. So I get that. Maybe that's okay. 
It but, can uh, be okay. Like it's not a terrible thing. But then yeah. when you open, this is Camus now. Like this is like we're we're drifting into a little bit of nihilism. But uh, but like there's this idea. I, I totally am with you there. Where it's like you gotta go around your day, and if you're able to be happy, if you're able to just function day to day, you don't need to have some you know introspective epistemic understanding of every of your entire life. That's mm-hmm. not you know you don't need it. But as soon as you open that door a little bit. You cannot close that door anymore. Like that door is now open. You have looked. You have peered into the mirror, oh, and damn. there's something there, and you That's need terrifying. to address it. This is like Camus, <laughs> right? This isn't me, but but like it's you need to address it now, and you literally cannot not address it. You can't because like, I think we're I, all gonna it, come out of this episode so many, needing therapy. So, so many literary parallels to like original sin or like ringing the oh, bell yeah. or like breaking the mirror. Go on, go on though. Um, he, I, I forget what he called it. He had this amazing term for it that I used to know, but, but I forget what it is, but it's some sort of like, it's something like radical awareness or radical introspection. It's like he, he essentially was, what he was describing was the idea that as soon as you kind of start having any sort of, um, crisis of any sort of, you know, it could, could be faith. It could be anything. As soon as you challenge your own beliefs or start to ask yourself why you believe something, um, or examine your own fa- fa- flaws or faults, then the rest of your life, you're just trying to distract yourself from it until you confront it. All you're doing, everything you're doing is just distracting yourself from it. And so you have to confront it. And what, so... What does that look like? Um, it depends. But like the distraction I can explain, the distraction is pretty easy to explain. It's just anything you do to stop yourself from thinking about it. So whether it's taking drugs, whether oh, it's okay, but, masturbating, but you could, you whether it's watching TV... Like... You could look at this from a, a, a lens of he's like an insanely depressed person who who doesn't want to admit that distracting himself is like healthy or something. Actually, he argued that it was the opposite. Like distracting yourself, all you're doing is you're kicking the can down the road. You're not addressing the, 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 the web inside you, the thing that's itching at you, the thing that won't let you go. Every, all you're doing when you take drugs or when you participate in any sort of escapism is you're just not you're, you're not addressing that one thing. And so, like, until you address that one thing and you figure it out, essentially, you sit down and have an honest conversation with yourself and figure it out and come out of it with some sort of goal, um, then you're never going to be happy. And this was his – I'm not saying he's correct. I'm just right. like, describing what the framework that he was laying out was. And I think it's an interesting one to consider because a lot of people who – I know a lot of people who went through different kinds of depression um, – who this framework was actually very useful to them. At the very really? least, to try to dig themselves out of it. Yeah, like, I, I had to explain it to them because that's actually a framework that I used to get out of depression too. Um, but yeah, like, it's it's something that... And, and by the way, like, in my instance, it um, you could you say that there's a community aspect to it. Like, I reached out to a community. I started accepting myself more. I started doing things that I liked, like playing music. I started setting goals for myself, like, being nicer to people or trying to, you know, be more agreeable or interpret or things that I like, like I like film. I want to be more, um, more conscious about how language of film works. Like I just set all these not goals, but it's just, there's this goal of who I want to be. It's kind of like, I remember the matrix where Morpheus goes like, it's your residual self image. It is the mental projection of your digital self. And I think that that's really it. It's the mental projection of who you want to be. And you can call that whatever you want. There's so many religions that have a name for it. There's, you know, secular frameworks that have names for it. Furry, to some extent, a fursona is a name for that. You know, it's just a mental projection of who you want to be. If you can, I think if you, you know, as long as you can set some sort of 
goal for who you want to be, a version of you that's better, and you could move toward it through tools like self-criticism, you know, a little bit of cynic cynicism, a little bit of you know, intellectual honesty and humility, a little bit of knowledge, then you can kind of dig yourself out of it to some extent. There is mm-hmm. some chemical aspect to it, obviously. Not everyone's neurotypical. Not everyone's able to do this. Some mm-hmm. people have, you know, disabilities that they don't know about that are mental in nature. There's chemical, you know, reactions in their brain that don't allow them to do this. But for, for a lot of neurotypical people, I think it's possible to try to use this framework to dig yourself out of this branch. Mm, yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe we Camus and Hitchens. <laughs> what's the end goal? Um, to feel to feel better. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna to, start because I don't know what the end goal is. Oh, no, like for you personally, you have to construct that, that goal, right? Yeah, you have to create yeah. that goal. Oh fuck! A lot to think about, I guess. Do you do you have like a an, a Superman that you uh, aim towards? An Ubermensch? Yeah, I didn't want to, I didn't want to pronounce it wrong. So I, was, I was like, ooh, I mean, Superman. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, to some extent, and you know, I'm happy to say that. Um, furry Ubermensch. I do have a furry Ubermensch. <laughs> oh my god, uh, I love it. Well, it's a first uh, fursona in a sense, right? Like that's okay. what that is. Yeah. Um, but I'm happy to say that to a large extent, like I have achieved most of the goals that I've set out for myself, and I'm currently in a state where I'm, for the first time, like pretty satisfied with my life. Like I'm not depressed anymore. I don't have any, you know, anything that's nagging at me. I don't hate myself anymore. You know, there's. I've kind yeah, of come out concept. of I've come out of a hole and I feel so much better about it and now it's just micro adjustments now it's just like small little quality of life things like I should I should exercise more I've started working with you know my brother to get some movement down like, you know I, there's a lot of there's some small quality of life things that I'm still micro you know adjusting to change for the better but I think uh, by and large I kind of really have gotten over the big hurdle of self-hatred that uh, I think we all have at some point and I'm not peddling anything, which is great. I, I get to. I don't get to say like, what? oh, hey, like do this or that. I was so, going to ask you to, to buy. Give me a signed copy of your book. What do, do you do? You what do you do for work? I work for um, a major bank in Canada. Um, I do. Oh right. right. I, I work for financial crime threat mitigation, um, mm. which is financial crime compliance in their anti money laundering unit their investigations unit for anti-money laundering. So that's stuff's happening. That's kind of very relevant in British Columbia and in Canada in general. There's a lot of money laundering going on. And from my perspective, as someone who's working at a bank, our responsibilities are just to uh, report uh, from a compliance perspective, report any potential uh, breaches of compliance to the Canada regulatory agency that's responsible for it, which is FinTrack. Um, So the work itself is fine. Like I'm not like... I don't go to work going like, oh my God, this is exactly what I want to do. I don't have a career, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't have like a career in that sense. I have a job that pays Mm -hmm. the bills. Um, And it can sometimes be interesting, but most of the time it's just day to day. But yeah, so I don't, so I'm lucky in that sense because I just have a way to pay the bills. I have money. Um, I don't have a lot of money, but I haven't, I'm I'm single because I'm aromantic. Hooray. Uh, I don't have a car, so I don't have to pay for that. You know, I I don't have any expenses. I don't have a car. I don't have a house. I have rent, which is, you know, whatever I, you know, I barely eat, um, (laughs) as I have a high metabolism. Um, and I don't have a relationship, so no, I don't have a person I need to sink money into. And my and my hobbies aren't expensive. I don't like, yeah. fuck, you know, I'm not like, I don't know, like a skier or something. I don't have like expensive hobbies where I need to buy loads of gear. 
I like I play chess. That's about it. I spend like money on you know my hobbies are are, are narrow, and so I I get to have money. And then just on my off days, I record podcast. I can report co- podcast with you guys. I can watch films and do commentaries on Adam's channel. Um, I can play music. I can hang out with friends. You know, I, I generally, I'm, thankfully, I'm I'm able to be happy without a career right now. Who knows? Maybe that'll change, and I'll have a midlife crisis in ten years. But you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I find like yeah. depression can sometimes change forms, like based on what stage you're in in your life. Like that's kind of how I feel about mm-hmm. it. It's it's like like my high school depression is very different than like my twenties depression. Whereas like I, um, even your depression has more growth than me. I mean, full disclosure, <laughs> I I take medication now, so it's like it's it's yeah. um it's. Yeah it's obviously like mitigated but in high school I just felt like you know like the whole world is just like crumbling and like everything's a disaster and I mean in a sense I feel like that but I don't know I just like I feel um now I'm just before I was just like well like I just want to die because what's the point and now I'm just kind of like well there's no point in dying either because it's like you know (laughs) might as well live and see what happens like just in case but but there's like there's no point in dying I, I remember like, but yeah, I don't know. I just think like teenage depression just takes a different form a lot. Like, I don't know if yeah. that's just me. Um, and I, even in people, it takes a different form. Like some people I know, they like, they deal with it in different ways. For me, I find like I overexercise. To, like, oh yeah. That's not know? a terrible, that's not the worst yeah, way to go about it. Say that, you I'm could like... be doing heroin. <laughs> oh. you know, so ex- exercise isn't the worst way right yeah 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 no for sure I, but i do find i also like drink more um, <laughs> fair but but de- like definitely like you know the coping mechanisms are different um yeah i don't know or i like i i channel it in something like i just see like a problem in something that might not be a problem um so so yeah i mean i think it's, it's different but it's it's a very interesting issue to me because uh, part of me just thinks like like whenever i talk to someone and then they say i'm not depressed i'm always like what <laughs> i used to be depressed and i'm yeah. just i'm just i'm i can't I tell feel you like how... everyone is but yeah i but think I most people if you're are. not then i mean you're the black swan here i'm uh, i don't know how to feel about that like it i took a long time i really like every manifestation of depression the idea of wanting to die and then realizing there's no point in dying and so like i might as well just live it out and see what happens like all of those things i've i have had those feelings like right. i have and i've had addictions too just not drug addictions thankfully but i have had mm-hmm. addictions that i've had to break off of i i've I, I know what you're talking about i i can relate um i wish i could help more like uh, the only like what works for one person obviously doesn't work for other people so I, in that sense, I just consider myself, I guess, lucky. Yeah. Um, but oh, I, I, but if it's if it is any sort of help, if reading Camus or reading Hitchens or reading whoever or trying to expose yourself to worldviews that, you know, you're not normally exposed to, if, if that can help jumpstart something, then then that's the only yeah. thing I can think of that potentially could encourage it. But yeah, I really wish I I knew the answer. Yeah, but and, I know it's you know different for other people for different people so. Maybe it's yeah. Jordan Peterson. If it's Jordan Peterson, then do it. Go for it, right? I'm <laughs> not kidding. If if reading Twelve Rules for Life can, you know, get you out of your depression, then do it. I don't care. Yeah, that's where I've seen like value in in it because I've been yeah. like, like I see, like I'm like, okay, if this is like helping depressed people, it's fine. Sure. Um, 
but like yeah i mean as we've established it's not my issue but um yeah well i think um, i know this is this is a good <laughs> note to end on and we'll we loved having you i appreciate it so much so yeah thanks for joining on the unacceptable podcast uh and uh, we'll see you next week yeah.